and welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I'm Stormageddon. What, what, what did you do there? You pointed at me. I did. Put me on the spot. Two weeks ago, I seem to recall that you made such a big stink about not getting pointed at. I was not prepared for it, though. I mm. realized I was definitely... John is all about complaining, but no, when no, action gonna, is taken... I'm going to put my. When I'm push put comes to shove, I, I, when your I back's against the wall... I may have misspoken. In fact, I probably misspoken. In fact, there's a blooper that's probably going to end up at the year at the end. Look at him trying I'm to misspoken. weasel his way out of No, this. no, I'm admitting I was wrong. This should be Matt's job. <laughs> admitting you're wrong? I mean, I often admit Now we wrong. never have to no, hear it no, from no, him I'm again. admitting that you should do the introductions, because I'm just not ready for it. Oh, well, that could be true, too. He's yeah. not emotionally prepared Apparently. for the burden that is the intros. Well, you kind of surprised me. It was, I was very surprised. Were you surprised? I was surprised. The power of being the Q guy. <laughs> it's it's very, very powerful finger you got right there. Thank you. I was befuddled. Anyway, any announcements this week? Nope. Nope. All right. Well, I guess we're jumping in. Really, uh, nothing, Matt. No, I got nothing to say. Really, I I actually haven't been doing anything music related lately uh, to talk about. So hopefully, some new stuff in the horizon to chat about. We wow. see shows coming up, isn't it? Nope, already happened. Oh <laughs> darn it! You should have plugged. Wow, that. we should have. It's a good thing uh, we have an exciting album this week because uh, wow, exciting <laughs> is one way of putting it. Yeah, I don't uh, know if that's the proper way of putting it. Prepare your ears, listeners, for Yugen. The album Death by Water. Uh, have you heard it yet? <laughs> Go pause, listen, we'll still be here. Uh, for the past few weeks, it seems like we've really been stretching our legs. The 190s have been pretty exciting so far. And as we approach our 200th episode, I could not resist the temptation to pull us further down the rabbit hole. In all honesty, this is the kind of album that makes me snicker a little bit at our conversation in the opening track of Varmints by Anna Meredith, just three weeks ago, in fact, in episode 192. Our conversation about Nautilus and how the track was pushing you off, as, as we said, I think both me and you, Matt, Albeit positively for me and you, maybe a slightly less so for John. I think maybe a little more than just slightly. Okay. Okay. A little more than slightly. Yeah. <laughs> just fine tuning it. Uh, but yeah, next to the way this album starts, I'd say that track was a warm invitation. A uh, big comfy bed of fluffy goodness. But perspective is key. Uh, so what have I done to you this week? Well, upon my first wide-eyed listen, I thought that I had brought you a strange blend of prog, jazz, chamber, and avant-garde fusion. And I was right. Sort of. Forgetting that there was actually a movement in the 1970s that really embraced all of these oddball threads uh, all at once. And it was a movement that was essentially born out of being misfits for their time. And that was a little movement called R.I.O. Rio, standing for Rock in Opposition. It's not a genre, so to speak, as much as it was a collective that sort of supported each other when the rest of the music industry was not having any of this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the irony is that today we tend to perceive the music industry as being a little bit more of a bulwark than it was back in the 70s and 80s. In fact, I'll reference another recent episode of ours, episode 193's Junk by M83, in which we discussed uh, frontman Anthony Gonzalez's perspective that the 1970s and 80s actually offered more promise and possibility in music. But but the irony is that today we actually do kind of live in a culture that is really far more open to niche genres, vastly aided by the internet. Uh, if you can rally the support and spread your music to the right crowds, it is possible. So is this album Rio? Well, it's Rio influenced. Allow me to read some stuff from Yugen's MySpace page. Yes, they have a MySpace page. Uh, Italian avant-prog ensemble Yugen came together at the end of 2004 under the impetus of guitarist Francesco Zago and music festival organizer Alt-Rock 
label head Marcello Maranon. Uh, there's a lot of Italian names coming up here, so I'm going to do my best. Just be kind. Zago envisioned a group that was uniting prog rock and chamber music elements and began writing compositions for Yugen, whose membership by early 2005 included, in addition to Zago, keyboardist Paolo Botta, reed players Marcus Staus and Peter Schmid, and bassist Stefan Brunner. As the year progressed, Zago continued to write additional music, and the band's lineup expanded to include the diverse instrumentation required to realize the guitarist's vision. Uh, that included Massimo Maza on vibraphone, marimba, and glockenspiel, multi-instrumentalist Giuseppe Olivini, who it specifies played everything from harpsichord to shakuhachi to theremin, uh, and then pianist Maurizio Fasoli, violinist Elia Mariani, and clarinetist Marco Sorge. Uh, by the time Yugen commenced the recording of their first album, Labyrintho de Aqua, which is, means water maze, uh, in June 2005, the lineup also included drummer Mattia Signo, uh, noted avant-prog drummer Dave Kerman of Thinking Plague, five U's, that's double U apostrophe S, that's a plural number of U's right there, and Ashvak and Present. Uh, I believe those are all groups. And then on mandolin, Tommaso Ledi, a member of Stormy Six, one of the original bands that participated in the Rock and Opposition Collective during the late 70s. So, yeah, that's a lot of people, but that's not even close to what we have here, because that was just back then. It goes on to describe a bit about that first album. It says the second album actually made an even more explicit connection between Yugen and the Rio sound that had emerged 30 years prior and that the third album featured upwards of 19 musicians and included several American Rio musicians as well. As best I can discern, what we have here is an expansion on the September 2011 lineup, which at the time was a much smaller septet version of Yugen, uh, but then they seem to have bulked it back up again to about maybe 17 or 18 people. So, yeah. It's, it's a lot of the same names that I just mentioned, but it's also a couple more. Everybody that's, ready? That's... That's a lot of people. Yeah, it is a lot of people. And it's not an orchestra. No, it's not an orchestra. It's considered, it's still considered chamber at that point, even though really orchestras, I guess, could theoretically, you could be an orchestra with only 30 to 40 people, right? Maybe even as few as 30. I don't, I don't think there's like fine lines, you know, that define where the chamber ends and where the orchestra begins. Do you? Uh, no, I'm, I'm a You're with firm me. of believing right. that, that there is a defined line and oh, 31 individuals. 31. Only because you definitely need a spare for the first chair. Well, we'll have to hit up a crash course correction if you're wrong. So okay. put your okay money on the that. table. Yeah, what money? <laughs> All right. Are you ready, Matt? You're ever so silent. Yeah. I'm just kind of blown away by the sheer scope of an act like this. Yeah. Like, we struggle to refer to individual musicians when we're talking about just a four-piece band, so... Mm. And it was a big deal when we did FFS and the fact that it was Franz Ferdinand and Sparks coming together, and it's like, a lot of things going on, and now we have, like, this. all of the music... <laughs> Yes, this. We have this. Well, yeah, it, it was born out of some of our recent discussions. I, I felt we were moving towards some interesting places, and I just had a... I wanted to go prog. I didn't expect to get this, but when I started listening, I really couldn't turn away. So let's begin with track one, Cynically Correct. And it's spelled C-I, not C-Y. I think that's curious. It almost looks like they were going for the word clinically, but missed the letter. This is a seven-minute long... Seven minutes and 48 seconds, in fact intro. Uh, and like I said before, uh, I did mention in Varmints that Nautilus was one of the strongest intros that I'd heard in weeks at the time. 
Well, this is one of the harshest intros. I think we can maybe agree on that. It's a seven minute long barrage of stuff, which on the first listen to me, I think drifted wildly between complete confusion and utter fascination. But let's let's get one thing out of the way before John really wants to get a word in here. I, I do want to say this this is truly in, in the vein of a chamber ensemble, this is largely composed material. So thus, even as many people as you have, it looks like they're mostly working off of what's written on the page, note by note, letter by letter, literally. Well, as far as being composed, it is an A B A B compositional work. It has two very distinct ideas being portrayed here, and they are revisited. True. Well, that in, it, times. that in itself wouldn't necessarily not make it, you know, chamber or composed. Like for instance, that's something that a, a jam band could easily do. They know when to change sections. But I'm talking about like the note by note stuff here. And that is most evident when the later. Uh, a sections and B sections start integrating one another together, yeah. and you almost get like a, a C hybrid sprung out of the two. But I mean, what we start with is something that is very distinct from the B section. The A section is is a combination of glitch and natural piano from from its very first. That's an interesting word to describe it, like acoustic glitch. Essentially, yeah. 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 I mean, on one hand, it's so busy and impulsive that it really could almost come across as like a fusion jam. And I'm sure many ideas here probably erupted out of jams and improvisation, but obviously I believe what we're hearing here is just letter by letter. It's, it's insane that this came out of, I presume, maybe one person's mind, and that is probably the, the frontman here, uh, Francesco Zago. Uh, there could be more influence than that. This is a pretty diverse album, um, and this is a pretty diverse opening track. But everyone's got to be in the same page just to function. And uh, another thing, although I try to usually be as thorough and precise as possible in what I'm describing, I'm not going to transcribe this album for you in, in verbally. It just, it just wouldn't work. We're going to try to incorporate imagery. We're going to try to go off of the long-form uh, changes, the, the pivotal changes that it makes, and certainly those, those chilling moments that it, that, it, uh, that it sends you. But that's about the best we can do uh, alongside you know, stating our opinions. It's a shocking first track. Yeah, I mean, this the way it starts is very disjointed, and it's just it it almost does feel like this just noise wall of noise at first it's because a, it's just like all of these things happening at once seems to have no rhyme or reason. It's madness. It's yeah. it's if there was a feeling here, it would be madness in that it's erratic, it's unstable, and yet I find that in the very beginning, the drums and actually the harsh metal guitar accents are probably the most stable elements. There is a, a heavy metal element here for sure in those two things. That's something that I probably haven't mentioned yet, but is pretty strong here. Being that it's prog, it kind of breaches close to that while also being a little jazzy at the same time. But my point here is that although the groupings may occasionally vary um, in terms of like time signatures, a very regular pulse is felt in the drums throughout most of this opening section. And then the guitar honk that comes in there uh, occurs sort of every once in a while, typically offbeat. But as, as harsh and erratic as everything else can be, I find that those elements keep me very anchored. It's a heartbeat that you can rely on even when the brain is off its rocker. And that brain, that piano work, is is yeah. borderline giddy. It it's, is. It's jumping up and down all around. It really doesn't feel like it has any home. It doesn't have any 
any place to be other than just bouncing around the room itself. Yep. It's it's in and of itself that line that through line was extremely enjoyable. I love that bit almost in exclusion of everything else that's going on because it seems like almost a, a light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of flourishes on top of a very metallic harsh nature that yeah. that the rest of the A section is doing. Yeah. I, I this is another little illusion. I mean, speaking that we're going off of like brain versus heartbeat here, it, it, the piece is almost like a like a pre lobotomy. Like personalities like this piece are the reasons that they performed lobotomies back in the day. Despite all the patients' more accessible qualities, I actually think back to kind of a, a, a Simpsons quote. It was a Treehouse of Horror, in fact. Bart's evil twin Hugo, where Doctor Hibbert is describing why he was separated from Bart at birth, and and while while Hugo is sort of twitching in this, there's this eerie slow zoom in on Hugo. Then Hibbert says, too crazy for a boy's town. Too much of a boy for crazy town. The child was an outcast. Shocking zoom in. That's essentially this. It, it, it's too weird to kind of exist in the mainstream, but then at the same time, it's also, it, it, like, I don't want to completely commit to the word avant-garde here. It has a more tender side, and we're probably going to be getting into that, um, well, both within this track and the album itself. Well, yeah, because when we get to the B section of this track, though it'd be brief when it first comes in, feels more jazzy and mellow. It's not nearly as aggressive or as cacophonous as the part A. If the mind is going a mile a minute and if the heartbeat is steady and strong, this is actually that zoom out. It's watching a person just saunter around. It belies what's going on on the inside. And here, it's it's almost aimless. It's got it a seems distinct... to stagger a bit. Yeah, the, it's the jazz section. Yeah, yeah it staggers around. A little. It does stagger, and yet it's uh, to me far more digestible than the first section. Sure. Even though the first section, I guess, kind of makes sense in retrospect. It's weird. This is around the 40, 42 second mark, so we're still very very early in this track. And and actually, I like the way it ushers in. It's a very clean break. Maybe a full beat of rest once part A is is done, and then the second theme that's very distinctly jazz. The pace is much slower. You get kind of a horn solo, but I admit it—it it is very aimless. It's a little bit noir, uh, but the drums do seem far more erratic. Interestingly, because in part A they were more regular, here they're the more erratic element, but despite they, that everything else is thinned. But they're much less emphasized, and it's more of a, yeah, of you're a follow, focal you're point on the horn. horn. Yeah. Uh, while previously we were really, really focused on the percussion, even with the giddy piano that I was, you know, really honing in on, the percussion was ever-present. It was there. It was in your face. You couldn't get away from it. Mm -hmm. Here, that's why I'm saying it's a bit of a zoom out. It's, you're seeing the whole picture instead of the inside. It's it's more muted. It feels like it's on the peripheral as opposed to a focal point of this section. But in that case, you're only allowed to to see that, to see that whole picture very, very briefly before you just zoom in again. You're immediately right back to part A, which seems this time even a little bit more intense. And this is as, you know, we, we weren't there for that long. It was like between 42 seconds and maybe 57 seconds. By 57 seconds, you're completely back to the beginning. Uh, the pulse... I, I think has by this time grown a little bit more comforting, if, which is really ironic considering how, how off-putting it was as of the first five seconds. There's, there's a way this track kind of creeps up on you, and I find it t enjoyable from a prog perspective. I can get behind it at once I, once I recognize the patterns. Well, here, the patterns become more recognizable, too. When we revisit the A section, there are some moments that feel more for lack of a better term, mainstream heavy metal. Like, they're not actually, but they at least give the impression of 
rhythms and melodies and and construction that would be reminiscent of a more modern rock track. Extremely heavy metal, yeah. And that's mostly accomplished through the guitar. I mean, it shows up a much bigger element, the electric guitar that that steps in and and starts accenting everything. And I think that's actually why the percussion works as as a safety blanket, because... Well, now it's not the focal point of the really heavy tone. Mm-hmm. Now it is more, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, we were heavy before, but this is heavy. This is deep. This is the more disturbing aspect that we were going for. It's well, always weird, the, the pairings that they choose, though, because alongside that, even that itself only lasts for about maybe 10 seconds uh, from like 110 to 120 or something like that. And and the gritty guitar is definitely forefront, but it's also accompanied by sort of another little childish piano, like a, like a high-pitched annoying child who just can't stay on beat. And of course, that's their intention here, is to kind of offset it a little bit. I'm sure it's written verbatim, but you, you start seeing why why I, I preface this with the whole phrase pushing you off, and how it's kind of ridiculous with a lot of other genres next to something like this, where it seems like that's not just the intention, but it's it's they are trying to force you away just to make you curious. It's it's very reminiscent of the discussion we were having in Varmints. But that said, it also has some elements that are meant to just be familiar because when the B section steps in again, it's it's again even lighter than earlier. It's it starts taking on a stronger noir feel. I didn't really want to use noir for the first time, but this B prime really does start going kind of heavy handed with it. And it does have some slight nods to the A section and the drums in in the bass tones. It, it feels like it's starting to get a little bit of cohesion. But at mm-hmm. this point, I want to point out something I got I got a problem with. I'm not enjoying these jumps back and forth. They don't feel they don't feel quite fluid enough. It's less of a zoom in zoom out aspect of what's going on and more hard cuts. And these hard cuts are making it difficult to follow a lot of the scene work. And this is where it's starting to lose me. And we're, what, yeah. about two and a half minutes of a seven-minute track already in? Well, music is a funny thing. I feel I feel a little weird saying that after 195 episodes here. Well, music is a quirky little beast. It's, it's, it, the fact is, what you're honing in on is, is, is form variance. And their approach to, to really messing with the form is by having harsh cuts uh, in, in very short succession. And that's not something we get often. E- even when we're looking at something that's a little bit more experimental, usually the opening aesthetic of the track or of the section may shock you initially, but then after that, you're usually used to it. And they usually are pretty consistent with that. Here, they're going for multiple opposing aesthetics that are shifting very, very harshly, not not gently composing one you know into the next, in such short succession. That's something I've never really heard before. So the reason I say like music is kind of funny that way is because we're always playing around in music with what people will accept. And very often artists try at least to incorporate a few of those things, you know, just to, just so that their music will be accepted by an audience before they get to be thoroughly, you know, uh, independent, thoroughly original. But in this case, it seems like on both fr- fronts, on, on every little ticker on every check mark they're just like nope we're not, we're not gonna we're not gonna be in that department you can't put us in that box you can't put us in that box uh you can't rely on us for uh for sectional consistency you can't rely on us for uh for time signature consistency every single thing is just i guess this is what rio is and honestly it's my first experience with this so uh 
Yeah. <laughs> well, there's something that kind of gives a lie to that statement you just made, and that's this next section after this B prime. Mm-hmm. It's almost a C, or it's it's an amalgamation of at least the instrumentation of A and B, because there's a lot of random ideas that are thrown into here, or haphazardly placed and, and built upon one another. Well, before we go on to C, let me just do a little bit of a tirade on how much I really, really love the, the B prime, as we'll call it, the second iteration of B, which is a much longer iteration of B. Remember, it was so brief the first time round. Um, and we get it again, like I said, around 1 minute 54 seconds. Really going to do this by the numbers here. Um, next best thing to transcribing. And this is, of course, the other uh, a secondary jazz section. But this actually was the first bit of true satiation to me. Um, and I am going to discuss this section in more detail because it was so fascinating. It's a more serious version of the first one. I love the way the previous section, first of all, doesn't just break into this as suddenly as some of those previous uh, sectional uh, breaks. It kind of sidles into this one. And sidling is the way I feel throughout this entire section. Like, I'm kind of skulking around. It has all the things that I love about funk, the kind of creep strut, but in a slightly more complex way. Specifically a strut between the drum and the bass. A very brief, clean, warm, regular bass pattern. And also the keyboard alongside this feels a lot warmer. It feels warmer than it did certainly in, in, in part A. It's a, different, it's a different sound, it's a different timbre of the keyboard, and it's alternating between the left and right ear so rapidly. So you do get the sense a little bit that you're being stalked. It's doing it playfully, of course. It's it's too catchy to me, actually, uh, to feel threatened, genuinely threatened. That was actually last week, Mutant by Arca. But this uh, this time, I feel like it's mostly stalking you with the chords that have that little flat five component. It feels very diminished. It gives a whole diminished feel to this whole section, and it's also there in the horns, in the saxophones, these comping saxophones, which usually just accent and dance around you. It's almost like a Star Wars cantina feel. But thankfully, we do get to sit with this uh, long enough to feel all these various motifs, as far into it as, as two minutes and 50 seconds. So overall, you're experiencing maybe just a little over a minute of this full section, which is actually kind of long for this track because things change so rapidly. You feel the themes that they return to, and you begin to understand the section by the time it's done. And then we start to move into something else. You get a couple of false stops before another dash, another another case of of running. So maybe the, the dude who's stalking you really does have in, uh, sort of threatening intentions, because that's where the madness really explodes in Part C. Yeah, in Part C we get something that almost feels like it's born out of A and B, which is why it's a C. It's yeah. not, it doesn't, it, it has enough of both to be something completely different, but it's definitely much heavier than anything we've gotten before. If the metal just felt kind of there and present and a little strong before, now it's really in your face. That plus the unintelligible, possibly foreign language vocals we get over it, it just feels uh, manic at this point. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a second because the very the very beginning, usually dominated by the piano, it's doing like this yeah. little halted triplet thing, and it allows you to really feel the pressure of of this dash. Um, and I, I, it gave me kind of a bit of an instrumental narrative because it, it really feels like you're running again. So we have that similarity going back to Varmints as well, despite that we're in a completely different genre. Uh, but yeah, that's then where the vocals start. And those, I didn't expect this for the life of me. As far as I can discern, Japanese lyrics? 
Possibly. Uh, Japanese, considering German shows up later, might be that. All, all I know is that they're I hear unin- Japanese personally. They're they're unintelligible. They're high pitched. They're they're well, meant mostly to be disturbing, if if anything. Yeah, I, I I in some ways kind of count on the fact that they. It feels like they're marketing this album to people that probably aren't going to understand that. It right. really didn't sound Italian. Um, no, no I, not at all. Well, I think I would also, think I I know enough to know that it's Japanese at this point, but it's it's an odd choice. Well, it's also because this section, remember, is faster than previous sections too. So with the heavier sound and the vocals it's also been sped up so the vocals are coming quickly they're not it's not like they're lingering and saying a lot they're coming in going out and they're flying they by s- you they sound angry i mean it sounds like they're they're reprimanding you harshly with brief little spurts of of, of dialogue that's just going to stick with you it almost feels like they're going to kill me in my sleep i i it's interesting it actually is very effective musically. And then around this whole section, bits of A and bits of B keep showing up. Instrumentation that was exclusive to one is now showing up, and it's being intermingled with stuff that was exclusive to the other. It's it's sort of like the melting pot of the two ideas, sort of spinning around the drain, falling apart. It's a great experience to really start understanding how the two are related. It's still very brief, and this is a seven and a half minute song. I don't like being able to say the word brief. I don't. I wanted to sit with this. Yeah, bear with us, listeners. This may be one of the longest discussions we have on one track. It's quite necessary in this instance. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely feel that how it's starting to kind of blend. They sort of start to wrap it around after this, or not wrap it around, but wrap interweave various things. Like for instance, even while those 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 vocals were occurring, it gets interrupted by these little saxophone runs, which is kind of a throwback to earlier. Um, and then around like three minutes fifty four seconds. Uh, the mad dash kind of returns, uh, what entered us into this section. And the only thing that I could really compare, the way it sounds at this particular moment, the only thing I compare this to is probably Danny Elfman. Like, it, it feels, it has just the right amount of playfulness to its otherwise really macabre atmosphere. I could even describe a scene for you, if anyone uh, has seen the movie Beetlejuice, which I personally love. There's a scene in there, probably the greatest climactic scene, where, where Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice becomes a snake and starts chasing him around the upstairs, kind of toying around with the family, holds the father up, and the music in the background, I think it's like the height of that entire soundtrack. And here, it sounds really a lot like that. And that macabre theme does get continued because then we get B double prime or mm-hmm. prime prime. I don't know. How do you say it? Yep. Double prime? Uh, yeah, we'll, well, call it, we'll call it double prime because it's kind of back to the noirish piano thing. It's gonna, like four minute ten. I was going to say that like earlier in the, the B and the B prime and now the B double prime, it progressively gets more noir. I felt like this felt like that black and white smoky room and it kind of accentuated and built on what we were getting before. It's a good observation. It's, a, it's one of the shorter sectional works of these Bs. It doesn't compare yeah. to that first B prime. It's only about 25 seconds long. It's done by 435. And then it goes into C prime. The only reason why I'm going to call this section C prime is that it's once again borrowing a lot of the elements, like the scream and the metal noises are coming back in. The glitchiness from the A is coming back in. And this is when I really started to be able to define what the instruments are doing to one another. While the piano throughout the entire track, throughout the entire piece so far, and for the piece itself, seems to be mostly fragmented, the glitchier aspects seem to just be arguing with the other instruments. When it shows up, it seems to be in direct contrast with something like the horns, or like the guitar, or the percussion itself. It's... It's nice to be able to actually find a through line, because it took a while for me to find this through line. And 
it came very late in the track itself. We were four and a half, five minutes in when I finally saw this. This, I think, is probably a great aha moment, but all said, the first time I didn't hear it, second, third time I didn't hear it, it was, it was actually the fourth iteration that I finally was able to make sense with this track, which I love. I love being able to have that, that moment where I see the intelligence behind everything. But four listens, four listens when I'm trying to find this thread, that feels a little harsh for me. Um, this, this track, especially at this later point, when I'm I'm hearing the arguments, it really doesn't, it still doesn't sit well with me. As far as an introduction, it felt like, it felt like it was too much of a brain teaser for this album, for even an avant-garde album. Okay, uh, I have a few comments um, on, on many different aspects of what you just said. First, I I first said of all, that's all right. First of all, um, I, I do agree that from four and a half minutes on, I do think the track starts to get a little bit more sporadic. Maybe it's just because, well, they've worn on you for four and a half minutes, and now it's just hard to follow it. But I, I still could probably uh, divvy up some of the sections here. For instance, I would disagree that from four and a half minutes, I wouldn't call it a C prime. I don't think it has much as, in, as much in common with that middle section where the vocals were. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't get vocals until the very very end I think no actually no uh, maybe like it gets closer thrown to six, in there a little bit closer yeah. to six minutes or something like that but really what we do get is something definable um around uh four and a half and that's like it, it's it's back to the heavy metal thing but this time a lot more forceful like metal demons the kind of thing that would almost be like it's maybe the first slightly cliched thing on the album where normally it's giving us it's giving us all these you know new 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 it's it's our own brand of fusion but here it's pretty strongly like like heavy metal old-fashioned arena heavy metal. Well, yeah, this section definitely sounded like something you would hear on a heavy metal record. It didn't sound like avant-garde. It did feel more like something you would find in a standard, quote-unquote, song, finger quotes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this moment also, at this part of the song, you really get a sense of how this band, and for sure this instrumentation thrives in chaos. I think the fact that it's so sporadic and then it gets even more sporadic, even with discovering that through line towards the end, you get a better sense of this is what they're setting out to do. They want to show you how they can play and thrive within this chaotic sound and structure. And that's that was the other thing I was going to comment to John about, is that I think, I, I do believe it becomes pretty quickly apparent, you know, as early as halfway through this track, if not earlier, that that really is their shtick. Um, and they are consistent in that, at least within this track, for sure. When I return to music, when I return to things on a second, third, fourth listen, uh, like you were saying, John, I... I like the fact that tracks always have something more to say to me each and every time. I, I, I don't want it to stop. Fifth, seventh, listen, uh, 110th listen, it doesn't matter. I would always like to find that, ah, that time I found something new. So to me, there like there's not a cap at, let's say, listen number four. I haven't discovered everything yet? That, no, that's no, cheap. It's, it's not that I'm, I haven't discovered anything or anything like that. It feels like I was being tested with this track, that I was actually Absolutely undergoing you the were. But I don't want to be, you know, sitting down taking an exam when I'm listening to music. This is, to me, supposed to be a, a nice, immersive, enjoyable experience. Regardless of the quality itself, I, I, I felt like I didn't study enough to understand this track. And just because of the subsequent listens and me finally, I guess, passing the exam itself... None of the other tracks on this album really had that same feel. They didn't feel like they were throwing heavy, heavy, heavy discord at me over and over and over again like this track was. That's my major issue. That's that, that that's is the true. thing that I that's the thing that while 
I'll be upfront. I love a lot of this album. I really, I don't know if I'm ever really going to enjoy this first track. Ooh, this is, okay, still still have a lot of comments. I know, I know. All right, it's, it's tough because I do believe that you're right on the count that yet the goal of this album kind of starts changing as as the tracks progress. As you go from one track to the next, it doesn't seem like that's, it's not always their goal to, to keep, you know, jerking you around right and left. There are a lot of tracks that are incredibly consistent and incredibly fluid. Track one just simply isn't one of them. But this may be an interesting parallel uh, discussion that we're going to be having in the course of this album, along with actually describing what's going on and the imagery and our opinions of it, and that is essentially the way people approach music. The whole idea of satiation period, and maybe how ridiculous it is I mean what you said about the exam thing like you don't like feeling that you're 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 uh, taking an exam when you're listening to music necessarily I would argue that that's probably what keeps a lot of people away from new genres well I do feel like the first few times I listened to this track in particular I failed it and that actually really is <laughs> off-putting for me I mean, I kind of get it now, and I know we're pretty but much so on the wonderful. same page. It's in the, the exam that you can retake as many times before you get it right. Yeah, but I, I, I feel like having a setup where I feel a lot of listenership and a lot of people are just gonna like fail. When you look at the rest of the album, and I think we're gonna be going on to that in a few moments. When you listen to the rest of the album, I feel like that was the notes that we needed for this track. Um, but I do think there's it, this is a very uh, this is an appropriate parallel discussion to have because it addresses the fact that a lot that this is so far off the mainstream, especially especially considering everything I read about you know rock in opposition and the whole movement that existed, and the fact that this is available to everyone. You don't have to kind of be in a specific niche to find this nowadays because of the internet. Then a lot of people are going to come across to this and they're going to have many of the same questions and same reactions as you're having, John. So I encourage you to keep playing this part. It is desperate needed as we uh, discuss the rest of this album, um, but especially the, the rest of this track. Honestly, we're, we've almost wrapped up here. I would uh, describe the, the tail end, the last like two minutes of this track, as a lot of closing material, a la a sonata that is, you know, finally wrapping up and incorporating many sections from part A and part B. That's very much what the last two minutes of this is. You get kind of, uh, after you get that metal demon section, which has all this wailing, it almost sounds human, like it has a keyboard and a guitar that's maybe like imitating a human sound or if it actually is a human I'm impressed there was also <laughs> that harpsichord that showed up briefly here and there well I'll take your word I don't remember that specifically but <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on so I guess that kind of proves your point a little bit it's more heavy rock then they go back to the jazz more heavy rock and then I really love the tail end where they actually include amidst the all the flurries here they include this great upward climb kind of more skulking between the piano and the guitar really really great harmonies here um yeah, I I was able to digest this, um, and I went back to it avidly uh, by the third listen or so. So that's a track that grows in me, and it's what I like to see in music. Let's see the other sides of Yugen, because it's a very different side of them in track two, Under Murmur. This is only a one minute, 32 second track. So they're not all about, you know, the grand prog masterpieces. This is, in fact, very short, very concise, very noir, very playful, but a lot softer and creepier than, let's say, the Part B equivalents, the first track that we got. But you can definitely tell that there is a similarity between the two. It definitely takes from that B section, but it's a little more erratic. The B sections in the first track, while also kind of having the cluttered kind of random nature of the previous sections, did kind of level out a little, whereas here, 
it feels more like an erratic jazz version of parts of the A parts to a point. Well, it is piano driven, and it's right. that in that single pl- piano element that you hear in the beginning, that does sound very jazz. It's the piano mostly at the high end and mostly leading everything else along, like towing it along with its series of runs, most of them very chromatic, and that's what kind of gives it a very jazz feel, very even, very chromatic, but then everything else starts imitating. They trail behind and they copy what the piano initially did, and they occasionally embellish, as if everything else were the piano's children and they're just trying to imitate it, but failing at times. And in between these very pure piano parts is something that really feels more akin to an electric piano. It's doing very similar things, but instead of being so upbeat, it feels more downturned. It feels more uh, counterpoint to the very natural sounding higher register piano. It It's a nice back and forth between the two emotionally, and it leaves you going for the first minute or so of the track. Because what that leads up to is a dream sequence where everything kind of goes star wipe on you and you get very open space, very broad, broad strokes with the notes. That was an unexpected section. I mean, augmented chords, it feels like it's mostly built out of augmented chords that that slowly arpeggiate, kind of creep upwards. And yeah, it's immediately what I thought. It was like a dream sequence, mainly because augmented chords are always used to create dream sequences. It felt very fanciful, almost. Like... It was either a story being told or someone dreaming. I think any kind of fiction, whether created by the mind or created by writing. Mm-hmm. And and I think a full song of that might have felt a little out of place, but I felt like this kind of bizarro jazz that gave way to this kind of, you know, bizarro hipster kind of scenery. Hipster scenery, interesting. Bleeding into this fanciful moment is sort of like it suddenly becomes internalized. Like you're seeing this setting that feels very kind of like a club and then everything goes inward as you're almost within someone's dream. But Mm. it's also still making reference to that first minute, making reference to that A section because a lot of the melodies that were used, a lot of the, the major bits are actually showing up in this dream sequence. It's only five or so seconds that you really get that feeling going on and then things start grounding themselves fairly rapidly so that it closes up very... I like it because it feels fulfilled. It feels like it really does a lot to cement and to bring itself back around. And what was great is that it is so nice and sweet and short. It's It's borderline bittersweet it doesn't really leave a bad taste in your mouth except for that that e piano that was throwing me a little bit off i mean i don't want to have to go back to the word enigmatic but i may be forced to in this case because it really is it's a strange like at least i was getting very definable emotions in the first track you know each and every time it went angry you felt terrified or you felt like you're running or you feel like you're in a bit of a avant-garde club um but this one it's 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 odd that's why i kind of described the opening of this track in in terms of the sort of abstractions like you know the instruments are trying to imitate the other it feels more like a musical like it's it's literally an art piece within the confines of developing musical material developing motifs i think establishing imagery outside of that even even though the the uh, the dream sequence is certainly an outlier in this case, uh, would be maybe a fallacy. And a lot of where that kind of wishy-washy feeling is the horns. The horns are very sharp sound for what this track is doing. They're they're very much at odds with a lot of what else is going on. They're not really sweet. They're not smooth on top of everything. They they have an attack that does a lot to to jumble it up. So when they're replicating and falling behind the piano work, 
they really do feel like, oh, someone's flicking the side of your head that it's trying to get your attention. That's why they felt childish to me because, yeah. you know, it's just the it's just the, the timbre of the horns, you know. The piano felt very uniformed and at least precise in what it was doing in the very beginning. And then the others, as they imitate it, they sound a little bit just off. And then the only constant is the bass in the background doing this little walking bass thing. That's very, that, that is almost textbook uh, nightclub jazz right there. Yeah, and it keeps so. you going, and it, that's what really allows me to get, even even with the flicking upside my head, I, it, that allows me to get into the groove of this track, mm-hmm. to really enjoy it. What a beautiful little art piece. Yeah, and I think what's important to, to note also is that this is a piece. It's not, even though it's brief in length, especially comparatively to track one, it's not a transition piece, it's not an interlude, it's very much its own piece that is structurally important to have. To to call it an interlude would really be, you know, to to summon up an argument that I don't think we want to have, which is, well, what defines a theme? Right. You know, what is a th- everything is theme, and if, if, if several of the longer tracks have multiple themes, you know, stitched together on end, then why isn't the single, you know, one-minute track any less of a theme? Uh, let's go to something that actually, it's harder to really define a theme at all, despite that it's a much longer track again, and that's track three, the title track, Death by Water. This... Was oh, yeah actually I'll admit my spur for really doing this album uh, on on the podcast. This was a good reason to do this album. Easily th- one of the most interesting pieces on the album, but not alone. Like it was only because I had heard tracks one and two when I was listening to this, and I was just kind of like you know testing out, testing out the waters. No pun intended. I don't want to die. It seems to tell me I'm gonna die, but it's it, it's not terrifying at all. This is not a terrifying track. It's it's very very moody, but. But the funny thing is that it only works in in connection to me with tracks one and two. Despite the fact that it's a completely separate genre, to me it was the fact that they showed me that they can do all of these different genres. They have all these different aesthetics. That's what thoroughly fascinated me. What we get here is a, an extremely soft hi-hat snare combination that feels like it's 15, 20 feet away from the recording material. Mm-hmm. It is obviously very present, but it's very background presence. The acoustic guitar the... is in the very beginning, yeah. um, and that was different in itself. You have an acoustic guitar, and then you have this post-rock moody, very moody, and it just starts building and building and building. And it's the opposite of muffled, though. It's so clear-cut. The way the guitar kind of waxes and wanes throughout the track, it shows up and it's playing some some nice power chords and it's getting chromatic, and then it takes a step back, like a receding wave. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is very much the imagery of the of a beach to me. I mean, it's hard not to see the flow back and forth between just the the sound waves itself and not equate it to something like that, to to a flow, to a rising tide or or a Doppler effect or something like that. It's 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 hard. Yeah, it's it is clean, but it has ambient space and that's what I think really established the moodiness. What I like about this introsection, when we go a little further the piano comes in and kind of adds more fluidity. It kind of gives it that kind of wet feeling that makes the track move in a way that f- seems to resemble water, which I, I assume is intentional. It's because it's built out of a lot of like uh, patterns of four notes, just constantly rolling and rolling and rolling. And then from that, we constantly develop the chords. It, it's just modulation after modulation reaching ever higher towards something. That's what this whole track is all about. And yet it never really changes the underlying figuration there of like these four 
note rolls. Um, I'm not sure if the, the thing was necessarily in 4-4. Four, four. It might have actually been in 6. It always feels like the 4 is like over 6. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it, it feels so fluid. It, it wasn't even a consideration in my mind. It was I was just letting the track hit me. And that's because they did a beautiful job of making the guitar and piano distinct from one another. Because that's where your your discussion of 4-4, four, 6-4 four, four seems to really come in. The guitar and the piano don't really overlap one another in the beginning, but they start blending throughout. They, they do retain a lot of distinction because when one waxes, the other wanes. When one steps up, the other one steps back. And they start meshing together and they start playing in tandem with one another. And when those parts start hitting, when they really start comping one another, that's when the word awe, A-W-E, big time hit, really starts just creeping up and then all of a sudden it's big, it's huge, and you don't expect it. I mostly recall that those two instruments were playing as as a unison, uh, but again, it's it's kind of hard to recall instance in this track because of the fact that it feels so fluid. It's almost just like a continuous moment. Um, I'm mostly fascinated by the chord changes. I, that's something I do wish I had transcribed. I will say that at this point, this is definitely the most approachable track we've heard as far as fluidity and engagement and mainstream influence. I mean, I feel like this has the most kind of cohesive structure we've seen so far. But what's really interesting is as the track progresses, the way they use both silence and not silence to kind of stir you is really interesting as well. There's these uh, rumbling e-guitars, electric guitars that show up and kind of do a little bit of a steam release. Like everything is just popping and you get a uh, half a second to a second breather yeah. and then all of a sudden boom you're right back in and that's when those parts start really building up where yeah they were playing in tandem the whole way but one was taking a forefront now after that first release they're playing together and after that second release you hit that third section that third time you really get a nice swell just like the beginning but this time it starts with power chord piano power chord boom big big knock right to the face. Well, what's interesting about that also is it goes back to my mentioning their use of silence because at that point, it's the only time in the track before that big power chord that we get it to start to fade like a song is ending and, and then you get yeah. silence. like And not just a second of silence, several seconds of silence. So you think the track might have ended mm -hmm. and then those power chords come in and they crash down in a way that, you know, I can picture someone playing a piano, striking a piano that way. That's why I love the really consistent, like, rolling of the hi-hat in the background that gives sort of the mist to this to this track so that when you do have like long spells of silence like that you just hear the lingering of that mist and then it just it comes back in again like another wave it was just a, a, a long distance between those two separate waves and that's the way the whole track feels even on the small scale I just I, I'm incredibly impressed that this is also within their uh, within their their familiarity within their purview this is apparently this is what they do too like i'd never i don't think i've seen such a diverse such diverse musicians within the course of three tracks and then i love the way the track ends the chimes coming in and they just ring out and it seems like everything dissolves around what they're doing like sugar and oh, water it's, it's so beautiful it's majesty and mystery all at once this was this is i'm, I'm gonna call it right now this is my year's evergreen Scale the Summit. Scale the Summit. Album, The Migration, episode 67, and Evergreen, as we've cited quite a few times now, I feel redundant saying it, but it's a it's a, it's a a great reference it's point, my, especially yeah, it's for, my touchstone for, for this track. It's my moment of the year track. Even, this even though, feels like one of those Even though that track kind it. of, it, it, I guess it gave off the same feeling, the same kind of, you don't 
quite know where you are Things in, freeze, in the world. You don't know. Yeah, it's a very despite that that was all you know built around just just an electric base purely. This just basically accomplishes the same, but with a much more full-bodied uh, effect. I was in love with this track. Let's. <laughs> it does beg the question, though. Like, well, how do you reconcile tracks one and two with this? I'm maybe impressed at the diversity, but it's it's hard to really see what they're going for emotionally. It's the, it's all over the place. Uh, the most I could say is that the from track one to two, and then now to three, it seems like they're taking incremental steps down from the overall madness that they you know smacked you in the face with. Here, we're, we're just completely soothed, and that that to me is a very intriguing. Uh, transition. It's it's subtle, you have to look for it, and you have to experience it over the course, but it's definitely there. Let's go to track four, because this is another shorty. Track four, ten years after, it's only a minute and twelve seconds. So this one has one of the harshest starts we've gotten so far. It's kind of grainy, kind of heavy. It, it really is heavy it metal. Feels more, yeah. It feels more aggressive. It may not have been the harshest sound-wise, like on the pain scale, quote-unquote, but it, it, it definitely felt the most aggressive thus far. Yeah, I, I would argue definitely that track one was was harsher to my ears, but this is prog metal. It's, I guess, yeah. you know, it's heavier in a in a familiar sense. Um, It's a regular, repeated riff, kind of like someone's hopping around you, trying to taunt you. And the only thing here that kind of uh, interrupts it yeah, are these little synth spurts. These little, like, They kind of rise and fall. It feels like Wayne's World literally, like, You did the finger thing. I did the finger thing. The Star Wipes. Every time I said Star Wipes, I think that was an augmented chord. But they do get a little erratic. Like, they feel to be patterned in the beginning, and then they start to just kind of hit notes all over the place. It's like a counter guitar statement going on right there. And then there's the elements of, like, those high whines that come in. And the track peters off fairly quickly. It's hair raising because of how rapidly the 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 kind of harshness actually descends. How how rapidly that harshness actually does peter off and and kind of get erased. Well, you do get the very long guitar wail starting around thirty seconds, but then yeah, by fifty one, it's already fading. So well, I think what's interesting is that it kind of comes in pretty quickly and pretty aggressively but then fades out almost peacefully like it's kind of just rolling over but it doesn't it doesn't leave like oh the anger's gone or the aggression's gone no, no just, it leaves a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth because it does peter off with that that very high wine but what i like is that it doesn't overstay its welcome and it doesn't overstate itself it it it's just present and aggressive enough without being as painful possibly as we mentioned the moments of the first track were. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to play devil's advocate a little bit. I guess mostly against myself since I'm a big proponent of this album, but I I do think that this track uh, being on the shorter side was a little bit less effective than let's say track two which was also equivalently on the on the shorter side track two I felt was working with uh, you know it was working with existing material and I'm not saying this isn't also it actually is working with separate existent material the the prog stuff the heavy metal stuff that was there earlier but it didn't seem to say as much to me as track two did I, I maybe I don't I, I it's hard to treat it as the uh, complex musical art piece uh, as I was able to in track two. This just feels like it's there. I feel, well, I feel like it's a magnifying glass on a section of what we've seen so far, kind of focusing in. Yeah. And so for that, I kind of really like it. I, I think, again, this is not an interlude, even though it's on the shorter side. I think it's just 
uh, an examination of something that we got on a broader scale earlier on. That's actually a great way of putting it, and I'm 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 fully on board with that. That's that's a great way because it also does a lot to explain just sort of like an instance emotionally of these tracks of this album so far well i will admit that form wise yeah there's a lot that's similar between track two and track four and if if you're putting them side by side and i if i were to favor one over the other it probably is simply because i like the core motif in track two better than i do here Uh, the piano motif i liked better than this particular riff which i think just comes down more so to taste than probably else well if you want a piano we do get next track track five as it was. So here again, we're getting an expert use of silence. When they bring in these kind of somber single piano note tones. Just two chords. It's, it's Those two chords ring, but what they do is it's one chord and then the next, and they just ring out for almost too long, it feels like. For several measures on end. Uh, and it's just, the, I don't, we haven't encountered a lot of music that lets single individual notes breathe like that at that length, and mm-hmm. I really appreciate wait, it. Wait, that. wait, wait, mm-hmm. wait, wait, there's more. It happens again. Well, yes. So <laughs> and, and it happens a third time, but this time it's not two notes, it's four. It, it feels like it's a measure. It's here. Well, I, it feels like it's coalescing. It's sort of coming together out of the ether. I mean, that's... I'm going to say that's the imagery that they were going for here. Well, by the time it coalesces, I, w- I mean, I was in- intrigued from the beginning, but I was interested later on. When it coalesces, it starts developing into something that's jazzy, but also not. It's it's very independent, like the music of an abandoned building. It's eerie. Well, it's got I, this kind of somber, sad feeling, but you can't quite place why. You just know it is innately by the notes you're hearing. You don't know why until until later. And right. and I all right, let's just get it out here. We have vocals in this track, which Ooh. is new for this album. That makes this a song. That so, makes it a song. We there can we stop go. pulling the faux pas. <laughs> so so the initial vocals when they come in here sound very kind of electronic, robotic stuff we've heard maybe with um, Daft Punk that they do when they do their vocals. It felt sort of robotic, but a l- less so than those those that band I'd mentioned I would, before. I would absolutely say it does sound robotic. Yeah, I okay. mean, especially considering we didn't have anything earlier that resembled, you know, a human, well, except for the, the Japanese spurts, like things that are always just surreal. And this, I think, is no less surreal. The fact that they chose to actually, the only, the only track in this album, uh, one of a couple actually, that has a full verse not a chorus structure but at least verses it's more of like an art song really it has it's it's poetry with that is set to music um it it is sung but it it is sung so barrenly it does, yeah. it feels like there's no emotion here at all and i think that's very telling for the album it also does explain a lot of the instrumentation in this busier section because it works in tandem with the vocals themselves I think that may not have been the best thing in the world because in this in this first verse there's a lot of complication that's going on instrumentally that once the vocals step in I get distracted from and I was really enjoying the complicated motifs the really complicated melody that was being developed the rhythm section itself which wasn't really that out, far out of left field I was just enjoying it I was I was digging it but the vocals step in and it's almost like it removes me from that well the melody is I mean depends on how you view 
complexity. I mean, the melody is actually very slow. It's it's digestible. Uh, but then again, tonally, it does seem to be the melody is is in line with the music because there seems to be another track where the chords seem to be kind of progressing upwards. I think we undergo a couple of modulations. I'm not 100% sure, but it feels like the vocals are just following that. So that in itself is a little bit of a challenge, but it's also very inviting to me. I don't think there's any disparity here between the vocals and the music, except for the fact that certainly in the first phrase, the second I started to hear vocals, Vocals, I was definitely just a little bit concerned. I was like, oh, I, I kind of wanted the instrumental. But I think I got used to it. I think after a verse or so, I got used to this strange uh, uh, union between the two. Well, what happens after the first verse is that it just becomes a piano-vocal combination. And this section... There's more to this it than that. Pic- well, it's primarily this. And that's the forefront. Like I These said, the music of an abandoned building, and I'm going to keep it that broad. Um, <laughs> when, it's, when it's just the two of them talking, the piano talking back and forth with the vocalist, it's great. It's beautiful. I really like it because I can enjoy it. I can focus upon both elements and how they're actually fighting with one another. I don't even care what they're saying at this point. It doesn't really matter. Musically, it's just beautiful. Well, still, I feel the need to at least say a little bit here. I mean, full disclosure, yes, we don't have the the lyrics. Uh, I, I tried to transcribe just a little of what I could, and I'm sure it's a little bit off, but this is the gist of what of what is being said. Uh, the first verse, do you remember the thunder waves? Only the hill rolled against uh, the mountain range, the spouting geysers of communal springs, although I think communal may have actually been a proper name, so I'm just inserting communal as a placeholder, and uh, prepare to to have my horse drink by the water from the same bowl as I. Uh, this is very, very loose, but it is, this is like uh, Thoreau material, you know, Emerson material, like it's just, it's it's very 19th century romanticized. I I don't know how to place this in in in, in uh, context with the album, which otherwise has been very technical and modern. And now this is so romantic and, and natural. Well, I th- and that's why I was hesitant to call this fully robotic earlier because there's a natural feeling even to the to the vocals, feeling kind of more like an android per se, maybe part human, part robot. Like yeah. there there's definitely a humanity to it. Like maybe the girl from Portal had a brother. Sure. <laughs> why not? Um, but the thing is, I think what really gives this track scope is once we get we do get an instrumental bridge that for the first time we can say the words instrumental bridge because it's not all instrumental. And what what that does is it kind of expands on what we've been getting so far, but then afterwards from the bridge you get that moment John was talking about, which is the solo piano kind of towards the end of the track with the vocals. And I think that's when the vocals had the most impact. I didn't mind the vocals about halfway, like Steve said, but I'm meeting in the middle. I still didn't love them. But once we get towards the end where the vocals are are kind of just mirroring the piano, then there's this swelling kind of beauty that I didn't really hear earlier on. It adds a perspective, I think, that I wasn't getting. That 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 ending piece was a the expanded middle section of the of the vocals, which was yeah. a, a, the brief piano vocals tete that does yeah goes real full force towards the end of the track. But that that bridge that you kind of glossed over, I want to <laughs> go back to that piece because it's gorgeous, it's great, and what it does is. The vocals are removed and replaced. The first replaced with a, a really heavy screech metal guitar. Not piercing screech, more of the long wail. Mm-hmm. And then strings. And it's two different aspects of, of basically trying to do the same thing the vocals were saying themselves. Say something. 
what the, the, the large wine does is it builds up an emotion in me and I just love it and then the strings release it. I love this combination and I've got to be honest, they said more for me over what the rest of the instrumentation was doing than what the vocals were saying in the beginning, even though there was actual words. I mean, I 100% I see where you're coming from, especially since I'm usually the one on that side of the table yeah, making yeah, you, that exact you, argument. And then uh, my counterpoint... Yeah, then I have to, like, I guess become you now. But I'm not going to retort, because I absolutely see where you're coming from. The only thing I'll disagree with is that this wasn't the first time that we got a, uh, we, that we stripped away the vocals. We did do that a little bit earlier, I think, after, like, the first or maybe the second uh, uh, stanza, the second verse, where we got a long pause. And, you know, it's very post-rock in the midst, but it was really a reflection of the kind of pause that we got the very intro of the piece when the piano had halted. And we had another one of those before we just start up with, Oh, another verse. So it was like it, it was a it was a strange little gap just in the midst of this before uh, character here gets to muse again in very abstract forms. You know, uh, something takes habitation there. Open my call for all the world. Blah blah blah. I, I really it's hard to actually pick out kind of through the robotic nature of the vocals. That's it's actually kind of hard to pick out some of these lyrics. But still, I found it interesting that there's that gap earlier on, and then here in sort of the same mid verse. Uh, region you have an instrumental, a full-blown instrumental, as John described, and it is quite beautiful, so it's like, at first there's nothing to be said, and now the instrumentals have to do all the work saying it, what the vocals are are clearly failing at getting across, and that may be the artistic vision, which I find especially fascinating, otherwise they wouldn't have made it sound so robotic. Well, I think also it's, it's meant, as we've pointed out in so many other songs before, not necessarily on this album, but just in general, taking that moment, that breather, to give you that perspective and beauty will only enhance what you get next. And it did, because the outro to this track, I felt, was the best use of vocals, piano, that we'd gotten on the whole track. I think it really... And I think John's right. I think it's that beauty and the way that um, instrumental was constructed really kind of gave the whole track perspective, especially this, the tail end. Well, you don't think it's a fascinating narrative? Like, the vocals, you know, strain to try to say something? Oh, yeah. You know, I can see th the Their poetry fails, fails them, you know, every step of the way, and, the and their time, vocals fail them at the same time. No, and then no, there's a gap no, to reflect the fact no. that nothing can't be said, and then he tries again, and then and finally the music fills in. He does succeed at the end. I'm going to say that because So was he that your favorite out. stanza? He, yes, he... The, mm, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to go right. with it's my favorite stand-up. Mostly because uh, while I wasn't really looking for the words, it's those last three words, as it was, and the way it rings out through his vocal play, that I just fell in love with it. I enjoyed that period on this piece, on, on, on this song, that it just made me feel warm at the end of it, even though it was kind of on the depressing reflective side well by the time i got i i don't i didn't see much change in the vocals by the end you know from well, the beginning I, no, no, they no, seemed no, very the, just constant. no no but it was the presentation yeah it wasn't that the vocals changed it's your perspective on them that changed yes and that's that's, exactly. how there you go. that's what i had just described i mean right. i told you i was as hesitant as you in the very beginning of the vocals but then after it, you start to understand that narrative and i think that makes a lot of sense to me and eventually the music does have to make up for what the vocals seem to be artistic failing at or being shown artistically speaking to fail at so now let's go to track six studio 
number nine. So just uh, <laughs> no, qu- no, 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 no question mark. Studio number nine. That's my question, sir. Right. Yeah, it's it's more in questioning the title. I just would say since Steve made a Simpsons reference earlier, I of course wanted to reference the um, barbershop quartet episode of The Simpsons where Barney gets um, influenced by someone else and leaves the band and then creates, you know, the and it's a spoof on the Beatles and uh, it's, it's just <laughs> very reminiscent of yeah. this, you know, and uh, you know number nine instead of. Studio Nine, whatever. Oh, Revolution! It actually was Revolution Nine, the original Beatles right, song. Right, right. And, and his then, joke was probably like number six. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just belching. <laughs> All right. Um. So yeah, Simpsons references aside, because I could certainly attribute that to probably just about anything in the world. This is a little bit back to the beginning of the album in so some this, sense. It's it's re- it's referential to uh, track two that also did this a similar thing but mm-hmm. here we're getting a more expanded version of that kind of trippy jazz that I really like it's saxophone and drums kind of trudging along but also kind of like skipping through the fields then again this album is so warped that the field is probably like full of dead things a la Tim Burton and that's no, what that's the lens that we're looking at it's little daisies that have baby faces or something that sort of level sure. I mean it's also being referential to death by water the actual portrayal of the percussion is a lot is that clear-cut but way in the background drum beat. I love this. I love them showing it back up because this feels like they're actually speaking to the rest of the album. And in many ways, what this shapes up into is almost like another overture. Um, In a way, actually, so, actually, I have, yeah. I have only one comparison to... to uh, I guess to show how I feel similarly, and that's the fact that later in the track there are some flourishes here that felt very, very Leonard Bernstein influenced, which, um, you know, it felt like West Side Story could be happening before my eyes, because actually there are a lot of similarities in the in the, the writing here, the composition, the constant rhythm changes, to some extent even the instrumentation that is very similar to the way uh, Bernstein tried to fuse together uh, classical form and then uh, big band jazz style so it's like that's kind of this in a little way just throw in a little bit of prog and throw in a little bit of heavy metal but this to me is closer to Leonard Bernstein than anything else well yeah well I think also a sense of that is the kind of playful nature that this track takes on too it's reminiscent of the earlier tracks on the record but also it's kind of like you said it had a skip in its step and so that kind of playful nature I think really kind of brings that out more and allows you to kind of see more of the pieces here also, at work. Also there's a bit of a tete-a-tete in that yeah. and that also is very Leonard Bernstein. The fact that, there, that that you just called this an overture that is very Leonard Bernstein. You have to you just listen to the overture of West Side Story. It is extremely sporadic but you do have visuals to go along to it because of course it's supposed to be the Jets and the Sharks sparring and I, this, yeah, in order to convey the kind of erratic motions of you know of, of a rumble essentially then you have to go a little bit nuts in the music and he was the first composer to really bring that out so I'm, I'm glad to see the tradition is being followed in a very unexpected way and it's also referencing other aspects of this album I mean it's giddy the horns and the woodwinds that show up the back and forth because I think there's a flute pan flute I'm not I don't know there was a uh, lot of instruments you mentioned in the beginning I know they showed up here I, they were giddy in the way the first track had that glitchy giddy uh, giddy piano playing well let me go through a few of those elements then I like how even in the beginning of the track you have these pitch bends that are sort of against the saxophone and the drums they're trudging along but the 
bitch bends seem independent of the beat. Just these little wow wow. <laughs> they curve very very against the beat. They're not they're not entirely with it. They're they're their own thing. And then by 50 seconds here, the hi hat and the cymbals have stripped because they were also here in the beginning. They're just kind of you know trudging along, like I said. But now they've stripped, which strangely leaves it warmer and more crisp because you don't have the blur that the hi hat was causing. So. That in itself kind of like focuses you even more on these various little motifs. It's not just the blur of an overture. Now it's like they're they are precise elements, and it allows you to focus a lot better. Uh, say, for instance, all of the individual components, uh, the pitch bends, and the um, and a xylophone. Uh, once we get to one minute thirty, the xylophone the is joined by a bunch of chimes, and then the harpsichord, and There's then an upright the upright bass, bass, which was one which of my favorite parts. Far more prominent at this point, and then a clarinet, maybe an oboe it felt kind of high-pitched and then finally a piano I'm literally just walking by all these instruments because they come in one by one it seems like they have cue numbers like all right you come in and, and measure 57 you're gonna come in on measure 65 and it's it's kind of exhilarating because that is the advantage that you get of a full-bodied band of upwards of 19 members most of the multi-instrumentalists that you just don't get let's say when it's you know one guy at a computer electronica not to impugn last week's uh, Arca, but this is uh, this is what I was talking about last week when I said I wanted texture. Well, and also speaking to texture, um, the I get a clearer scene from this track. I think with the way it kind of evolved and the way the groove built, but and the playful nature, I picture kind of like a beatnik club in the most cliche of ways. You know, people snapping their fingers and smoky room, sort of like a beat, black, like a yeah. Beatnik cheers. Yeah. In a very friendly place. Everybody knows everybody else. And that's why there's really no solos in this section. There's really nobody just standing up, except for the xylophone. Xylophone gets a very brief, like, solo kind of piece, um, which I, also, I thought was so cool there. Xylophone I also, solo. there was a moment where the clarinet kind of doubles the, I think, marimba, and they both <laughs> do the same thing, like, just doing this little run. I was... I was loving every bit of this, down to the harpsichord outro, which is so plain and playful, but nothing is off limits. Well, there is one element that we didn't, I don't think we talked about enough, and that was the actual rhythm percussion section, the drums. Because the drums stay in the same time, they don't change up, but they're so sporadic and so over everything else that as one piece comes in and there's a slight hiccup and all of a sudden the drums are playing something else. It's almost introductory well, when they, something jumps in, when the xylophone does something different. Depends on which element of the drums you're talking about. Like I said, I, I do think that was a pretty subtle but still very effective uh, of little maneuver they pulled when they, they pulled out the hi-hat, which left everything warmer. So there are things that happen with the drums. But just, then the kick drum it comes all depends in where your later focus is. It's so It's so nice because the drums remain identifiable throughout. They're the only element that never really drops off, that never really gets removed. There are sections without an upright. There are sections without horns or woodwinds or xylophone. The well, drums yeah. Obviously, are always there. When each and every instrument, you know, overtakes the previous, usually there's something that has to fall out at that point. Um, like I said, not going to transcribe. It's just, <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it is something to witness. Uh, I think... <laughs> I hope everyone has gone through this album. Otherwise, this is a bunch of gibberish. More so this week, especially, uh, than some of our other weeks. So let's go on to track seven, because, oh, if, if there is anything on this album, on this album, not us, but on this album that is gibberish, it's probably track seven as matter of breath. This is a nine minute and 27 second long track. It's it's the longest track on the album, and it's certainly the most sporadic. I would say this time 
true avant-garde. I, I kind of have to cease my illusions. I would say about this track that it feels heavy and weighted, but not in the same way the music was heavy in other tracks. I'm mm-hmm. not talking heavy metal here. I'm talking physically heavy and weighted. It was like it's thick. leaning on yeah. you. Yeah, it was that guy that's looking over your shoulder a little bit, and you just like go it, go it, away. It just <laughs> felt more impending than previous tracks, but not necessarily ominously. It just felt like something that was lording over you, and you were forced to just engage with it. It goes through phases too. And it doesn't go through sections where I can point out, okay, A is done, B is here, because there is no section. It's it's cacophony at moments. It's meant to be just almost a, a riff section for the entire band. Well, it gives me a chance to, I think, uh, th- at this point in the album, finally agree with you, John, with your perspective on track one. Because how you were saying there, like, you know, I listened to it again and again and I'm just not digesting it. That was track seven for me. Yeah. Well, Didn't have I, that with track one. Track one, you know, I think it grows in you. This track is absolutely... Track one does it's grow. It's detouring. It does every, grow in you. Well, I like it a lot more than I first liked it, but I still don't know if I'll ever actually like it. Here, it's a lot easier to actually listen to this track, in my opinion, but you cannot define it because it doesn't want to do anything permanently. Well, let me preface this by saying I I do have positive things to say about this track, absolutely. But I am gonna, again, play devil's advocate to an album that I have really grown to love at this point. I do think this is Time to go back to that little parallel discussion, which we should have been having, you know? We actually haven't mentioned it since we uh, since we left it off in track one, and that was how people are going to take this album. People, newcomers to the genre. I mean, I guess in every situation, that's always going to be very, very risky. Well, it's hard for someone to completely change their taste, and this is new by most counts. It'll be a little bit closer to people who are interested in jazz, a little bit maybe closer to people who are interested, uh, ironically enough, in electronica, considering that they tend to go off and they completely abolish form in most instances. So, you know, at least this is form-wise probably up their alley, but avant-garde is a trickier one because avant-garde has always probably turned off a lot of people, even people who are into some pretty complex shit. But this, uh, I, it's, it's, always evading you and it feels like every single instrument despite the fact that it's been probably very rigorously composed is has free reign but i mean that's also only the case for about a little more than half the track um because when we get to the second half of the track which i won't jump to completely yet but it does it does shift very to a very different place that doesn't feel quite as undefinable But as far as Mm -hmm. this early section, we're getting so many different instruments doing so many different things. I'm even hearing guitar sounds that I haven't heard yet on the record. There are some metal kind of grungy guitars that are coming in that when mixed with the drum work even are reminiscent of Godsticks and their prog work. Absolutely. It it just, it feels more honed in those specific moments. And in those brief moments, you can go, oh, this is a song I know. Oh, nope, there it went. You know, (laughs) it doesn't stay long enough for you to settle in and go, oh, I know this thing. Wait, no, come back. In many ways, is an exaggerated version of track one because yeah. that's kind of what we were starting to get at and then I'd be like no 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 I'm really sitting with this for a right. while and then you know even though it's quicker changes than most it's 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 at an average speed this it doesn't no. want you to get yeah. comfortable the here though I want to say it's to my ears probably more enjoyable even though I think it's a lesser track than track one than uh, cynically correct 
here it, you can just go along for the ride and kind of check out because there's mm. a lot of really solid instrumentation going on. The thing on. that it's missing to me at times are the themes, the motifs. Yeah. Like it's just well, so it much like more difficult for me to identify that's, them. That's, that's it. I don't think it really wants to do a melody. A piece. I don't think it wants to have an identity. But, but and I, because it doesn't want to have that identity, because it really just wants to be an experiment of noise, an experiment of just projecting instruments, it it, it does leave you with a bit of a cold shoulder that way. Well, you have to consider there is something very telling about a genre or a movement, R.I.O., rockin' opposition, that existed to go around the prog world of the 1970s and 80s. In other words, the prog world was too anal and mainstream (laughs) and uptight for these guys. Yeah, okay. Or if not specifically these guys, the people with which they're kind of writing in the style of We Presume. Um, I want to go back to the first half of this track that we're kind of broadly covering because we don't really know how else to approach it. There was an interesting moment, I think it comes in a little after the two-minute mark, maybe a little later, where... There is operatic singing that yes. feels very much like an instrument. Too, so much to, you, so Kate. that when Steve originally went, wait, was that a voice? Wait, did someone just sing? <laughs> it and we had to listen back again it wasn't to make just sure we caught it. operatic, though. It, I, honestly, I think it's the tra-la-la voice. I mean, I, similar. It feels exactly like the tra-la-la voice. Well, considering it's just like one note, really, it's just like... You know, a single... Actually, no, there are male and female vocals, but they alternate. At first, I think you hear a male, and it does kind of creep up on you at first. You don't quite initially recognize that it's a voice. Later on, it's it's a little more apparent. But then you hear just that one note, and... Of course, you can't quite call it operatic because it's not really doing much more than that. It essentially yeah. is a vocal soundbite. Um, but then it's doubled later on with saxophones, which also gives a really weird... Like, I, that's not something I'm accustomed to hearing. That's another... More more weird pairs on this album. They love it. I like it. I like not really having to to delve too deeply and trying to define a lot of this part of the track. I, I like just going along for the ride. Well, here's the thing, and yet I do it anyway. I, I end up trying to find little things here and there, but it's only, you know, in my, I guess the whim of the moment, in whatever little stray neuron it managed to uh, to reach in my head when I heard it. And it probably will change each and every time. Like, there was one time I heard the saxophone vocal pairing. It almost found like it, it almost sounded like it was made to sound 16-bit. Like that was a it, like two things that when smashed together created something that was completely that was different. Completely different, but there you it, go. It, it it worked. Yeah, I heard. I don't, that I don't know if that was like the goal there, but it, it, that was the the result. Um, then later on, you have these like ancient drums that are just smacking and they're ushered in like they're the like the universe is collapsing. That's the way it felt. It was that tribal. I mean, I'm not saying. Like, Avant-garde music has been around for a pretty long time, and there's a lot of different people who have called different things avant-garde. For instance, a lot of people back in the 19-teens thought Stravinsky was pretty avant-garde. Uh, for instance, the old story about how when he put on the Rite of Spring um, initially as a ballet, it, a lot of people thought it was hellish. They walked out of the theater on the premiere. That must be pretty horrendous. And yet the funny thing is that in that particular uh, ballet, the whole goal there was to be something fairly cosmic. It was supposed to be the rite of spring. It was like a a a, uh, a Celtic ritual, a Celtic ritual that they would perform in springtime to, you know, give homage to the gods and all of that. And obviously it's supposed to sound pretty 
kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, and that's why I feel like when I hear these drums and like metal is just rustling in the distance, and I'm talking about this track right now, I kind of am brought back to that sense. And there are certainly still to this day certain parts of Rite of Spring that I just can't listen to. Other parts sure. are beautiful, but other parts are just like, what were you on, Stravinsky? What were you doing? And that's the way this, this the middle portion of this A section is kind of, uh, is kind of growing on me. Um, and it, maybe it was the first kind of sort of theme kind of sort of motif that they built but then of course always they change it up Tr interestingly at two minutes and 30 seconds they returned to track two they they completely brought back the theme that was in track two the little piano flourish in the beginning of that very short track and now i hear it verbatim again just as an oddball in the middle of this track i'm like I went back. It, it really is verbatim. Like that is a really, really curious throwback. Since I haven't heard any other throwbacks on this album, any other, any other uh, through lines. And then following that, it starts to sound very Elfman-esque again. These like horns, the summoning you with nine notes. I think it was like nine. I counted about nine. That is then adjoined by piano. There's just there's so much to describe here. Even spurts of electronica, little spurious flourishes. The drums feel more, uh, more impulsive, and then more heavy metal. It's just. I don't know. I go from liking it to not liking it very often within the course of 10 seconds. I was a little bit more critical on this track, especially since we're deeper in the album now than the very kind of well-formed piece that I thought track one was. Let's, I guess, finally get to the big shift. Part B. If you're upset with part A and you thought they were going too far, well, then they get together and they go, well, screw you guys, here, this is what the opposite would sound like. And in many ways, this B section kind of is the opposite of what happened in A. There's very little going on. It's almost just a persistent rumble, and it, that's it. it. It's all atmosphere. It's, this, it's the, almost it's the literally the atmosphere on mic in in, in Yeah, the so co many cosmic background radiation. Yeah. I mean... All hi-hat and snare here. The piano is about the only thing that occasionally hammers out a few chords. Otherwise, it's completely ethereal. It's it's completely hugging the high end um, and almost completely volume shushed. It's been suppressed. Oh, and this spaciousness that it has, it rides on for a pretty long time. For a nine-minute track at around five and a half minutes to go into this and then pretty much stay there to the end, to the point where... The, the almost the final notes and moments of the track are just ambient buzzing as if a mic that was left on too loud it's just bizarre it's almost becomes this drone that if you to turn it up would kind of just be like your brain is fuzzing out is that it did we just hear the universe was that this track as matter of breath i mean that's a very odd, odd title but i mean to go from such busyness to such nothing is that the big rip that, as they refer to it, the, the universe is just going to drift apart and then it'll go from this busy swirl of, of a hot ball of energy in, in its first few million years to finally a, a big vat of nothingness. Well, you got to give them credit that it's kind of also still married to what the first track did for this album in having a very internalized and then a very external and then internal external back and forth here we're just getting the busiest of busy the the culmination of everything and then what nothingness sounds like i mean okay sure i don't want to underplay this part the b section because <laughs> as much as i am kind of on board with i'm kind of in the middle of john and steve here i i didn't dislike the first half of track seven i didn't 
love it either. I was somewhere in the middle from moment to moment, sort of like how Steve was describing. But then when we hit this point where it kind of just forces you to exist and just think, I, I like that moment. That I was feel- probably the most avant-garde thing said this entire episode. Well, but it's true. <laughs> Especially when listening to music, you're not often forced to just think and internalize. And I think what is kind of beautiful about this second half of this track, A Matter of Breath, is and why the name I'm going to wrap into actually fits is because that's what you're focusing on here is this is a matter of breath. This is a moment where besides your breathing and some notes nothing is happening so you're taking this opportunity to kind of focus on just being and i don't know there's something interesting about that especially because it connects to track eight you know when we get to it pretty well because they both have a, a kind of similar buzz i just i don't know there was something about it that really hooked me i don't know that i would say i enjoyed it or that i even loved it but it was a very harsh reality that i think was interesting to be involved in. actually that's where i was with a lot of what happened last week so i totally understand where you're coming from here and i guess i i do in fact see it i think i think that the connection can definitely be made for for that sort of imagery or for that sort of like just response to this track it's not I even just... that it can. You are forced to make that connection. I mean, you are going from such business no, to such emptiness. Fo- I wasn't forced. Uh, I wasn't. It's a pretty clean cut that they make. Well, they well, all right. No one they, forced they, everyone has the they didn't opportunity force to force me to do it. That's what I, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to say. No, you're a consumer. You're not necessarily forced in this instance. But um, in fact, they're pretty esoteric guys. You're you're really encouraged. But but the issue is the the chaos that came before. I guess works great as a mirror for the desolation that comes after, but neither were satisfying at the end of the day. Neither were enough to really sink my teeth into and enjoy for what they were. Okay, enjoyment is one thing, but you weren't meant to sink your teeth into them. You were meant to just experience these two parts. Chaos and silence, I mean, it's hard to... You can thrive in that. There are plenty of of, of tracks and songs and albums I've enjoyed over the years that have used both desolation and chaos and I've thrived. I've enjoyed it. You can you can get into that. I didn't get into either aspects of this wholeheartedly. No, I'm I definitely got into the latter half, but of course that is just it. Like you can't really digest how relaxing the last section is or or how just existential and open it is until you have experienced the busyness of part A. Going back to the line that Matt said about being forced to exist, that is one area where you absolutely are forced, and even though you call those words uh, avant-garde, you can't really have avant-garde words. I guess the only avant-garde words would be some kind of, like, run-on beat poetry or something like that, but, <laughs> no, they, but, but like, it is the definition of existentialism. I mean, that is, is it is the whole premise behind the idea that yeah. we are all just placed here and you, have, you are forced to deal with it. And it's actually a pretty interesting... Um, it's like a Louis C.K. bit or something like that where he says, well, you know, I was having this this wonderful experience where I just turned off my my, my, my phone or I forget whether he, that was at least the point behind it is that, you know, the phone distracts us from, from simply existing and that he was just sitting in the car one day and he just, you know, was driving and for no particular reason he just let out these, these sobs, these giant just sobs for everything that is life and that we're all going to die and everything it just it's all going to end and that was that was his point 
this is coming from a comedian. <laughs> and But he said it's, it's very important to let yourself experience that. It's a very beautiful moment, and to some extent that is the last half of this album. And then uh, he said, well, that's the reason I'm not going to give a phone to my kid. <laughs> like, that's the punchline. You have to wait through all of that, that philosophy in order to get to that. It's a pretty great build-up. I think I heard it most concisely on, on a clip of Conan. You can find that anywhere. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's this track. Um, it doesn't repudiate my earlier uh, opinions on part A. I still think that musically, they were just taking a few too many liberties for my ears. I would have preferred more structure in my chaos, if that makes any sense, because I do believe at the end of the day, that's probably what we're looking for, is to make sense out of things that even probably never make sense to us, even at the end of our lives. I mean, I guess, again, my biggest defense is that I feel like those two parts have the impact that they have because they are together. And if either were changed, it would affect the other. Um, part B couldn't be changed, but part A, you could shuffle the cards and you'd still get the same effect. I guess so. That's my problem. I, I think that's what gives it its versatility, though, is that you could shuffle the deck and still get the same effect to it's pair chaos. with B. It's well, it, it, in, it, it's the, it kind of goes against that. It invalidates the, the thing that every musician is kind of searching and that is that is their own artistic validation, that everything they did is is a finite, perfect product and that can't exist in any other form. And then this is like the antithesis of that. It says, well, actually, it can exist in any form. It's, it's, it's uh, musical white noise. Which would also be an interesting perspective on it. I it's think. an interesting perspective, artistically. All right. We could go probably around this uh, in circles. But let's try to stay on track here and go to track eight, Drum and Stick. So what I was alluding to before is the kind of spacious, kind of droney kind of feeling of the end of track seven blends really well with track eight because tra- track eight starts with this kind of fuzzy drone slash buzzing intro before murmur. drums come in. Murmur. It's a murmur. It's background. It's not like their stomach grumbling almost. Yeah, but it's too static, I think, and constant to really be a murmur. It's, it doesn't well, fluctuate. Well, it rises and comes up towards the actual introduction but, of the major instrumentation of the drum guitar combination that steps up and and goes here here we are this is the music well i like the chord that once the opening like slide is finally culminated and then it's joined by a drum i really like the chord that we've landed on um but the 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 theme here we have a more distinctive theme here and that's kind of the the piano starts forging this little two chord or two note motif where it's kind of like chord note chord note uh where it's like dissonance falls back on unison dissonance falls back on unison it's actually it feels like it's trying to create a consonant thing but, but it's su- it's it. suppressed yeah because the drums the drums are fighting it what the guitar does is re- remains the relevant factor for both of these instruments but the drums are really just just seeking madness it's the only way i can really phrase it because they keep changing up they keep screwing up the rhythm the time signature is the same but the actual drums themselves don't know what they're doing and they're they're enjoying this revelry of chaos the chaos that we we're really supposed to get here. I'm hearing in the drums alone in this track. Mm-hmm. But what the piano does is it's trying to calm it down. It's doing an incredible job of becoming even more strident, more forceful in in trying to get the drums back in line. It's two ideas that really grow apart very dramatically by the end of this track that I love what this is doing. It may not be the best track on the album, but it's one of the most interesting avant-garde moments of this album. 
Well, it's not very effective though, the piano. And I mean that, uh, I mean like that's, I feel like it's, that's the artistic vision is that it's not supposed to be very effective. When you see that, when you hear it, that it do that little motif, that little back and forth thing, it, it really does sound like it's stuck in a loop. It's, it's, it's a broken record. Um, that becomes interesting, I think, in retrospect, but it doesn't succeed at really like, it never succeeds throughout the track at developing it into anything else. And the whole track is really just this constant back and forth. No, every each is equally suppressed. I think because of how this track ends up playing out structurally, it takes me back to the kind of dreamlike moments we've had on earlier parts of the record, and not a dream as far as feeling fanciful or or, or awe-inspiring. More of a dream like the weird dreams that you would have about things that, while you're experiencing them in the dream, make sense. But when you wake up. You know, you were fighting a fish with a smaller fish, and you don't know why. Or Things that talking, in context... Well, I was hanging out with Ed the Dragon, and Ed the Dragon was like, Hey, dude, you really got to go check your 401k, because you never know when you're going to find some tuna in there. And I was like, dude, I know. I'm sick and tired of tuna ending up in my 401k. That kind of a dream. That makes complete and utter sense. I thought that was taking, standard fare. Yeah, no. They, they <laughs> eat less burritos the, late the, at night. The idea <laughs> that when you're experiencing this track and you're steeped in it, it could make sense. But upon reflection on it, you're like, wow, it seems just a little strange. That was just weird. And I yeah. like how it, it kind of conveys that emotion. Well, nah, I'm not going to disagree. I mean, I, I'm not going to agree or disagree. I, I, I do think if there was, especially toward the end of this album, you know, where kind of getting close to wrapping up here it's like it's a two minute 12 second track it's uh, kind of on the short side uh it it does become increasingly more difficult to to top yourself in terms of i think introducing something that's a little bit crazier a little bit out of the blue maybe that's why i didn't feel a dream sequence here i think it's because i got that in so many varieties of ways earlier in the album that this one just wasn't quite as effective but it was still pretty interesting ah uh, i will say that something that did top it was track nine uh der schnee which by the way uh in german means the snow that's simply the snow which so. is really interesting for this track because what happens is you get yelled at by a very forceful lady and it's all in german and i was terrified of her but if she was yelling about snow, I don't know how that could be frightful. Well, um, that, that, that's, you, you look through this through two different lenses. Yeah. First of all, the reason why I say this topped it is because this is, uh, this is actually a pretty well-known style. This is German expressionism. It's not something that everybody comes across, you know, on, in their daily routine, but it, 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 it was a pretty big thing. Back in the 20s, this was a pretty big thing, and, uh kind of, I guess, also born out of some of the stuff that Stravinsky was doing. I guess they took some influences there, so it's interesting we have that little common thread. Um, but by the 20s, a lot of German composers were going down this route of, you know, slightly atonal, but not quite atonal music uh, that was marked by a lot of art songs, a lot of a lot of Lieder songs. Um, but specifically in the 20s, they were, they were meant to scare you out of your wits. Uh, a lot of the, the singing style here is, is right up that alley, sort of short little brief bursts of melodic material that, you know, aren't traditionally mel melodic. They're not, they're not satiating you in any form. Every, every single note is meant to sound as if it, it is their inner torment. And it culminates in the most beautiful or horrendous way, whichever the way you view to look at it, and that is the single high note that just pierces through your 
throat and your soul and everything. It like her soul has just been pierced and she may not survive it spiritually speaking. Well, speaking of spirits, I I was torn between whether this was a a ghost or a banshee or a restless spirit or, or merely just depression speaking through. Because what's going on with those really soft forlorn horns in the background and kind of, I guess, ominous might be the only time I'm going to use it here. This ominous rumble playing around with everything else, the very long breath marks and everything. It was, I, I don't know how to take her because she hits this piercing note multiple times and every time it feels a little bit different. Well, I think what was really important about this track that made it stand out even more than previous tracks on the record is how important distance feels in this track. The fact that when she's singing, she seems to kind of come and go. When the ambient horns are playing, they seem to kind of maneuver back and forth. All of the instrumentation that's here, even the piano notes that are struck, they just, it, it seems to play a big part on how quote-unquote close or far it is from the microphone. In general, the piano mostly seems nearer. The horns in general seem a lot more distant. And then Sheik seems somewhere in the middle. Sometimes she seems a little distant. Like, actually, whenever she hits that high note, it feels as if she was suddenly placed like like a, a really interesting you know video editing thing was done where like she is she was here and then in the course of one frame she's all of a sudden like like 50 yards away and then she's doing the high pitched squeal from there but it is insanely loud so it feels almost just as loud as it would have been if she did it at a slightly lesser volume from her original position yes. it's a really really weird thing but in general in general when she's simply speaking she sounds pretty close she sounds like she's half an inch inside past your eardrum for a lot of this track yeah, and during some of the phrases when she gets really really into it when she sounds very tormented very angry she growls she's getting she's getting into it i wish i had a translation unfortunately i don't yeah, but well, that's, that's maybe that's, it's not effective what's i mean going maybe, on who needs no what's the okay, snow okay that's what i was going to comment on earlier what's what is so snow that she has to be this scary about like yep. that is probably the most provocative thing to me all right that's what i was going to comment on earlier because i i thought it made a lot of sense and you seem to think it doesn't make any sense well i feel two ways about snow i'm fine i find myself very at peace in it um but at the same time i i know a lot of people that hate the snow they detest it and of course the, uh, objectively speaking there is a lot to fear about feeling cold and alone and just this abyss of white that has now shrouded just about everything you know and love and can appreciate in beauty. Aesthetically speaking, it is, I think there's a lot to fear about it. Also, who knows? Maybe it could just be like the snow in the TV. You know, in which case that, well, what is that but cosmic background radiation? In which case we're back to the same damn theme from the last track. Well, uh, or also, two tracks ago, excuse me. I mean, the use of, of silence here too and the drone that kind of takes us into this kind of feedbacky outro plays more to the snow of the TV variety that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's like icicles when she hits those notes just piercing no. so hard into you. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are certain little dynamic things in the universe that do transpire even amidst all of the steady, stagnant, you know, never changing across billion of, billions of years swaths. But uh, to what Matt said, the feedback drone definitely does fit that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's it's. I think actually there's like upright bases that are making these long tones and kind of interconnecting them. And that is, it's either that is joined with 
an electronic sound, or maybe that's all you're hearing, but it's so distant, and it just is, is kind of there in the interim whenever you're not hearing forefront phrases, that it's it can be very chilling when you're actually, when nothing else is going on, and that's all that's left. Yeah, it, it makes the track's conclusion kind of stand out, because you're you're steeped in this this place that she's bringing you to but then you're again left with kind of yourself and the environment like the previous track or even the track before that you're you're forced to exist in a space that isn't necessarily comfortable and think about being out amidst like a huge plain of snow with nothing else as far as the eye can see. Initially, it would probably be gorgeous to of see course, that much that's snow. That's my point. But once you're left alone with yourself in that space with nothing in sight and the snow blowing. And all you hear is the crunch crunch underneath your feet. Yeah, it gets a little desolate. Yeah. There are stories, you know, even today of people, they get lost out in like the Sierra Nevadas, right? They were just driving from point A to point B. And it's probably like, all right, they're in their minivan. They've got a kid. They run out of gas for whatever reason or the thing breaks down. Maybe they took a wrong turn. And initially it's probably like, hey, we're lost. Well, come on, in the in the 21st century, when is that ever really that much of a concern? And then, well, one thing happens after the other. Maybe they didn't have their GPS. It, get, it breaks. There's stories of this happening, and yeah. people have died out there, even though they're just, you know, going from point A to point B. on a road. You'd think they're in complete and utter safety from everything around them. And then it starts swaying in them just how serious it is to be lost in the Sierra Nevadas, and that's the situation. Even though I think the situation I'm thinking of was probably around like 2003, so it actually was pre-GPS. I don't know if it's happened recently. It's still pretty terrifying. Um, yeah, I would say this was a very effective... I, to me, this really functioned more as the final track, considering that in track 10, a house... You're only talking about a track that's 45 seconds long. And uh, d to me, I guess Der Schnee was the... the the climactic point of the album and that's why I kind of felt a little bit negative on track 8, Drum and Stick because after discussing uh, just how weighted track 9 is, I, I find that there's one funny thing about this album is that it, it, it may shift genre very very rapidly, but if that is their card, that's an effective card to use because then it you never know what you're going to get next and even though it feels like they topped themselves as early as track 1 they they still managed to top themselves later by saying, hey, guess what? We have another terrifying genre right up our sleeve. And that's what track nine was. So let's finish off quick with track 10, A House. Which is a folk song. And like, like a Like real... a legit song. Vocals, strummy guitar, the whole nine yards. Seemingly like quite out of Minstrel place. level. Like, it feels like it's got a little bit of, a, of, of timelessness to it. And just its style and just its presentation. Yes, it's a timeless 45 seconds. I mean, well, the thing that I really like about the song, short or not, is that the vocals here feel completely human, feel very personal. And there's a kind of mid-range, you know, male vocalist and that what sounds like a very deep baritone vocalist paired with him in his quote-unquote chorus, because there's really no chorus here. Mm -hmm. It just, it adds this kind of ju juxtaposition on the vocals that engaged me even though at first when I heard this album closing with a folk song I was kind of like absolutely confused well you said human and I think that that does this discredit like this would be the only human element we really forcefully got on the album itself even the previous track was just the reaction of of snow or maybe the desolation of snow and and the t and, and the very crystalline quality of it and the very sharp quality 
yet cold and, and unapproachable. Here, yeah, human, yeah, approachable. Yeah, not really meshing with a lot of the other theme work that's done here. We keep talking about how it's pushing the boundaries, pushing you away, or, or pushing itself into be a mindscape, or or a very abstract idea, or just kind of a a moment of of explanation for what track one was doing. And he shows up in track five, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, like I, this is this is this really is an oddball for this. I don't album. I don't want to be too kind or too critical with this track. Yeah. I mean, especially for forty five seconds. It is like a just a postscript in in many ways. Um, it's an epilogue. I mean, I feel like this is a personalization. I mean, considering um, the 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 gentleman you mentioned earlier on, who is kind of the, at the forefront of this band, is a guitarist. This feels like his kind of personal stamp on the tail end of the record. That's my guess, anyway. Maybe, maybe not. A yeah, signature we in many ways. I guess I can see that. But did they really need to sign their work? I, I, I'd want to question that. It's a, a fair house. point, I guess, but I don't know. I feel a like... How, well, I'm a house, a house amidst the snow, a house, you know, something warm at the end of the day that has been the terror that we've, you know, been just macheting through in this album. And then we I finally arrive at a, a slightly more mellow place. I like the juxtaposition between these vocals. That's nice. Yeah, I mean... I, I, yeah, it's just a genre shift. And yeah. interestingly enough, as effective as previous genre shifts have been, the last one was slightly less effective. Only slightly. So who's going first? I guess I am. Because Steve can opt out, and I, I nodded it. I yeah. nodded it. No, I know. Yeah. This is this is a lot. This album was... We, we've kind of had a long run of albums that are ho- feel like homework, which is not I'm necessarily okay with homework. Thing. I don't like pop quizzes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I honestly had no idea what to expect going into this record. Um, we've, we've been picking a lot of artists that we're all only peripherally familiar with or not familiar with at all, which I think has been kind of interesting in reinvigorating the process because, you know, like anything else, you can stagnate and pick stuff you're comfortable with. Like, it blows me away that John still hasn't brought the new Weezer on. I'm not going to. We already did Weezer. Uh-huh. Um... Wait till you get to a desolate week where you have nothing to pick, and then, then we'll we're going to be doing music. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, so you know, I appreciate getting to hear stuff that I don't hear often. That said, I am. I just there were there are moments on this record that feel very much like noise. And artistic credit aside, I, I don't necessarily want to listen to noise. Um, but there's also interesting things within the noise. I feel like. For as cluttered as some of these tracks can be, there is something to take away from them. I mean, I think I'm most proudest of how seven track seven, as a matter of breath, really impacted me and the the kind of shifts that both halves of the track represented. That said, I'm at a loss for words when trying to describe exactly how I experienced this record. It's not really easy to describe, both on a fundamental level, just as music reviewers, and as on an emotional level. Like, I definitely got sharp, specific moments of emotions in specific points, but as a whole, it didn't leave me feeling sad, or happy, or, you know, in love, or, you know, depressed. You know, there were moments of those flashes of the story being told, but I didn't really feel super emotional at any point other than 
you know, during the title track, during Death by Water, like you can feel the darkness closing in on you in that track. And I think that the biggest struggle I had with this album was to find a connection point personally to it. I definitely engaged in moments of it. I appreciated the artistic value of a lot of it. But I think on a personal level of connecting with it, I was left kind of wanting. Um, you know, comparatively to our high praise of the last couple of records, especially of Mutant, and how we all felt that there was something very personal about that that story, whatever the story was. Or, that yeah, I don't know. I still don't know. But there was definitely something personal about it. You felt it came from a personal place, and you could personally identify with it. Here, I feel like this is coming from a personal place, but I'm not meant to engage with all of it. I'm meant to engage with what I can. The rest is just what it is. But I don't want to harsh it just because I felt like I couldn't approach it super easily because I think that's not fair to the artistic uniqueness of this, especially considering the amount of musicians who collaborated into it. There's definitely a skill. A, if one person wrote all of this and then it was played, is astonishing. If it wasn't, if it was collaboratively written, that's even more astonishing, That I was my original point. I said that to John on the way over here. Um, I, I, I can't verify that it was just the one guy, since it does seem like that's varied over the course of, of their tenure as a group. But uh, he still seems like the guy to me. I don't know. Yeah. I think for this to be an upper echelon record, it does need to be more approachable. I know as silly as that sounds, honestly, if you're not engaging, if you're not extending an olive branch to some degree, you're going to lose people. Uh, that said, also, you if you really believe in your art, you shouldn't change your artistic vision. So oh. I'm kind of like, yeah, I know. I, I'm kind of wavering. Um, this This definitely shows a virtuosity that I think is explored in a unique way um so now i'll stop rambling and actually give you yeah <laughs> my rating because um i can't stall any longer i don't know i think this is an, an, an even-handed four for me i feel like for it to be higher than that to be a 4.5 or even a five for me i i needed something else i don't even know what that something else is i just feel like this is where i sit i may have that something else only because one thing I don't really remember ever talking about on the show is that uh, I have a belief that art needs to be justified. And before anybody jumps down my throat on that, let me explain. Some art is meant to make people feel emotive. Some art is meant to make people think. Some art is just meant for the artist to be able to express himself. Some art, like what's going on right here, is self-justified. It exists to exist in many ways. And that sounds real temporal and cerebral and a lot of other old words. It's it this piece, this album, really is meant to just be exploration of the art itself in many ways. And I, I'm getting that a lot. But just exploring art doesn't mean you're doing something positive or or good or palatable. I mean, it's it's just you you still need to have a product that can be consumed. Whether if if you're the only one in your audience enjoying it, well, maybe your art is only good for you. But art, in many ways, needs to be a a, a pen idea. It needs to be able to spread through the masses. And a lot of this album really does that. It may be avant-garde in 
in a variety of different forms, but so much of it from Under Murmur almost almost throughout after the first track because I just can't get on board with that. I don't know. It's me. It's a personal thing. But from Under Murmur onwards, I can see the justification for what's going on right here. I can understand what the expression is supposed to be. I understand that this art was done in such a way that it does explain itself. It may not be the best explanation. It may not be really as cohesive as I want it to be even when it's trying to represent chaos there's there's still going to be you know some sort of form to it it is something that's being recorded and presented it can't be true chaos you can't have that it won't work I, I, I'll, I'll prove it to you later <laughs> and even the first track as much as I'm just not a fan of it I understand the the art behind it and everything like that I just I just think it can be done better some of the some of the problems, like as a matter of breath, I did not connect as strongly as, uh, as Stormageddon did. Ten years after wasn't quite the same impact as Undermurmur, and we all know track one. We're gonna skip that. A house, yes, I see it as sort of a signature, as sort of like that that thumbprint or that signature brushstroke you find on on a, on the Mona Lisa that identifies it to a specific artist, but. It's still not quite there, and I I get it, but maybe maybe if they had just gone off on guard in one or two different ways instead of nine different ways, maybe that might have been the the unifying factor that made me truly understand it and get into it full force. But they decided to explore really every version of experimentalism they can come up with. So there's that. <laughs> Um, as one who's also stalling for time, I think this is a lot better than what Storm's making out to be, but I know where he's coming from. I think this is a 475. I think this really is an upper echelon piece, but definitely needs to make some strides before it's going to be in the in the higher territory than that. 475, I guess, would say it's it's great, it's enjoyable, it's 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 solid, but there's significant room for improvement on some things. I think the inherent flaw in the way we rate a lot of things is that every week, whatever is more important to us at, at that moment is going to trump the same thing which may have been less important to us as recently as, let's say, the previous week. Um, I think that there was quite a lot, especially now that we have the luxury of having so many innovative albums in so in such close succession from Varmints to uh, uh, to Arca and then finally this. Um, it's it's we were talking I remember we were talking a little to some extent in Arca about uh, which was just last week about how music pushes you off and makes you feel uncomfortable and whether that is, you know, a, a valid choice. And we unanimously agreed it of course is because it, it lets you, it, it allows you to be familiar with another side of life, another aspect of what life can show you. I mean, no one said, and I think I said this verbatim last week, no one said that music has to satiate you. And this is that to a more extreme degree than even we got in Varmints and in Arca. I... This is a really, really tough one. Because I'm I'm not saying I don't hear your reservations. I think that your reservations were definitely on my mind because, well, 
of course, this was kind of a new genre for me. I mean, this is probably a new genre for even a lot of people that are into, you know, the more edgy sides of jazz or the edgier sides of Prague because it, 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 it takes such harsh turns. No one expects the German Expressionism track. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition or the German, German Expressionism. It's one or the other. Um, in this case, German Expressionism. Um, and I don't think anyone expected the first track but it's amazing how after such a, a brief span of time, actually, the first track started to grow on me in, intensely. And really, so did track nine. Not grow on you in the traditional sense. I would say that a lot of these tracks grow on you like ivy, like a vine that just starts creeping up. Initially, you're like, oh, get it off, get it off. That, 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 that is, a, that is a, a, a blight on that house. And then later on, you're like, oh, that's charming. Um, that may seem like kind of an odd word to, to sum up this album as, but there's so much that I appreciate about this work. And that's why I think I have to give my rating as sort of an amalgamation of the various different sides of me, like different different me's that actually exist here right now. One being the, the, the Crash Chords guy. I sit, I analyze, I'm looking for the art within whatever the album is. That's basically what I'm trying to do here as a member of this little trio. But then there's also the other side of me, and that's a, a listener of music who just generally wants to, you know, sit in the car, have something that is kind of easygoing on my ride. It doesn't need to be completely easygoing, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily outside of that version of me. I still think that side of me would be intrigued. If he heard it on the radio, he'd be very interested. But yeah, it's not probably my my album of choice. But then again, I do find that as a listener, I am developing a bit of a bias toward what's new toward newness i just think that i appreciate so much that this album is taking the the, the uh the the risks that it's taking and i i remember giving the pretty much the same exact argument back in in varmints by anna meredith i appreciate it for that and the regular everyday listener absolutely loves it on that on that ground and then finally there's the musician in me and the musician in me well <laughs> he obviously loves the fact that this is new but interestingly enough he is both I think kind and critical of this album because the musician in me is thinking, "Oh, I could never accomplish that. That is that is a compositional mind." F and he appreciates patterns, appreciates uh, complexity and the interplay and comping between all these various members. And it no, it's not traditional, but that's exactly what I love about it. And that's what why I think I got on board with track one a little bit sooner than than John did. Um, but the, the criticism actually comes from the overall album arc. In one sense, I stand by my earlier statement that each and every time they kind of shift genre a little bit, they do have, the, they manage to top themselves. Because simply by being shocking in that it is a new genre, then of course you're going to kind of just be affected by, oh, this is new. And then that is in turn satiating that second part of me which just because it's new. But I think that's a fallacy, and that's another argument uh, that we've kind of been going down the wrong path with, and we change on week to week depending upon what's important to us in that moment. But I think it really is a little bit of a detractor here. I kind of wanted to see an expansion on track one. That would be extremely challenging for this album, and don't get me wrong, at least 50 to 60% of this album is certainly in that ballpark, but the German Expressionist song, Der Schnee, it's a wonderful, wonderful art song, but I don't think it belongs in this album. It, 
if you if you view it through the crash chord side of me once again, kind of have to weigh all these things together, then artistically it makes so much sense to have those different sides if we're going off the whole, like, you know, universe existential weight that is uh, his goal that we're just presuming. But musically, it is very odd. I want to hear more about what Yugen is. And the musician in me feels that that is very necessary for someone to cultivate their own style and be fairly consistent. Not saying you have to be there every step of the way, but fairly consistent. So in that sense, I think I really, really would have wanted an album of track ones. Things that go upwards of seven, eight minutes, each of them in their own different way, showing different moods, but not necessarily different styles. But at the end of the day, this is a technical masterpiece. I I can't give this anything less than a 4.8. Um, it's kind of in my general pool of really, really super high albums that I'm faulting for maybe just one or two things that, you know, 4.9 is, is next to perfect and 5 is obviously perfect. But here, the, the faults, 4.8 is obviously really good, but the faults that I, I do lay on this album pretty heavily are the fact that it is it is impulsive in just about every single capacity. And I like to see impulsivity within the confines of structure. And just as soon as you get comfortable with that structure on this album, they change up said structure, which then you throw out the consistency. That said, I am coming back to this album again and again and again and again and again. Uh, so it, it, it being that I will be doing that and being that it's a technical masterpiece, I can't give it any less than a 4.8. And I think I think I may have actually liked it a little more than last week, uh, Mutant by Arca. And I know I rated that a 4.89, but I guess I felt that you know, being that that was 20 tracks long, and being that it was a, uh, being that it was just one guy, and that the album itself over the course of 20 tracks was a little bit more consistent, I guess that's the difference of my meager 0.9. 0.09, actually, Point. if you want to get technical. Almost a solid 0.1. Fine. <laughs> mathed, I've been mathed. Uh, speaking of last week, last week we got an experimental album, and this week we got an avant-garde. And this is these are terms that we'd like to throw around, and uh, we're actually going to talk quickly about the the difference, or finger quotes, the the kind of lack of difference in some of that, because everything that's avant-garde is inherently experimental, but everything experimental isn't avant-garde. When you're talking about something that's experimental, it means you're screwing around with one or two or all the major aspects of it. It could be the vocals, like the first vocalizer was experimental. Or instrumentation, the first synthesizer was experimental. Last week it was experimental because it was a lot of unusual noises, a lot of just unusualness, a lot of playing around with just how the presentation goes along. But in many cases it was very clearly defined. The big thing about avant-garde is that it kind of screws up theme, screws up the motif of, of, of what you come to think. Well, I mean, for me, I think those two terms weigh on me a bit just because, I mean, obviously I've had trouble telling them apart, but also I think I have less experience with them than a lot of other genres. I mean, that said, also these genres tend to bleed other genres. I mean, you know, it's it's the whole conversation that me and Steve had back in when we did the first Godsticks record way, way long ago. We talked about Prague and how I never really understood that Prague was 
a genre that could be made up of other genres because you can have heavy metal that's prog. You can have grunge that's prog. You can have bizarro electronic experimental avant-garde tra- that's prog. Uh-huh. You know? I, I so, was trying to define this on the way here and I came up with uh, rock, metal, jazz, progressive avant-garde. Sure. Yeah, well, that's all the genres I could think of that could... Yeah, and but but the point is, is I think the reason <laughs> I struggle with these two genres is because both of them are in a space where they can be amalgamations of other things. All they are are prefixes right. in many ways. They're just... They, you attach that to a genre that is slightly more recognized, and then you can adjust it. Isn't it? Basically saying that there is a spectrum, and once you attach the prefix, then, well, it is at the far, far end of that spectrum to the point where it starts really warping into a whole other spectrum. Um, <laughs> it's a weird one, and I do think it, they, this is probably why people make the quote-unquote mistake, even though I don't believe there are any rights or wrongs, uh, of confusing the two, saying avant-garde when they should be saying experimental, or saying experimental when they should be saying avant-garde. But I think that is, there is a difference. And the difference is, to me, that experimental, experimental music probably will work a little more closely within the confines of form. Um, it's not going to mess around so much with form. Form, I'm not saying like verse-chorus necessarily, but there will be themes. Uh, you will be able to identify the themes. They will be referenced. And all the while, texture, timbre, instrumentation is probably going wild. It's probably doing whatever the hell it wants to because it's experimental. But they hit their marks. They hit their marks because they're not trying to alienate everyone. Um, is avant-garde trying to alienate everyone? I would say... I think maybe. I would say maybe, maybe not all the time, but for sure, some of the time. I well, think... let's, give it a, let's give it credit where credit is due. I mean, uh, most people are inclined to say, well, when you we've said it on this podcast before, uh, me slightly less so, that avant-garde, uh, if you're trying to alienate everyone, that's a bad thing, you'd think, right? Right. But if you don't at least do that to a certain number of people, then music would never advance. True. Thus avant-garde, I think you kind of need a certain little dose of it. But the funny thing is that experimental, what was experimental, seems very often 10 or 15 years later to become the norm. A lot of music that I would have for a long time considered alternative rock now, I think is kind of bleeding over into indie or people just like, it's modern rock. It's modern, it's it's rock, it's rock, whatever. Um, Meanwhile, like in the late 90s, like, oh, that's all, that's some underground shit. But avant-garde never really, never really finds its way back. As early as the 60s, when, you know, you had a lot of jazz uh, avant-garde groups that were doing their whole little 3 a.m. thing, you know, in in the 50s and 60s, well, they they never, ever really became mainstream. I'm not saying, like, jazz can be very mainstream. It was the most popular uh, music form in America for 40 years. But once avant-garde came around, it was always on the peripheral, always. Yeah, but jazz itself was avant-garde for its time, and that's something... Experimental and avant-garde both have like fluid meanings because things eventually stop being them if they're done enough and accepted enough. Cubism, modernism, minimalism, post-minimalism, pop art. These are avant-garde art movements. These are things that were bucking the norm, and that's what avant-garde really is supposed to do. It's supposed to challenge, in many ways, what society regards as the norm and change it. So when you're applying that to music, you're changing the way a verse chorus structure is designed. You're changing the way a melody is portrayed. You're actually breaking it apart and reconfiguring it 
in a different way. Or you just go in, no melody, no rhythm, no nothing. We're going to have desolate silence, so it represents the the inner turmoil and you just have to be like we got today that's challenging the norm oh you mean uh john cage's 433 okay i don't know that piece um okay take this little clip that one that we just had right there okay and then multiply that on okay it's silence that's avant-garde yet if people kept making stuff like there's nothing no, no, avant-garde. It, we think of it as this rambly thing. It's also the presentation. You got to remember, it's being shown to be this is a emotional musical piece. It is silence. It is nothingness. It is just the experience of just yourself in your mind. That's avant-garde. When it gets done ad nauseum and becomes a recognized part of what music is, it's no longer avant-garde. I mean, I feel like if we want to put um, avant-garde and experimental in a box. Literally or figuratively, maybe a cubistic box. Is that uh, is that the right verb? Is verbalization? No. Cubistic. Cubistic. <laughs> I like it though. Um, you know, I feel like experimental, especially over time, is like a chemistry set. There are a set of instructions and guidelines, but more or less, you can still go hog wild with what you got in that box. Yeah. Avant garde is going to a science lab, grabbing everything off the shelves, and going. Nah, I don't know. Let's see what happens. Well, no, it's more form than that. It's you, Okay, you got your Legos. You're building up your Lego set. You don't use what's part of, you know, your actual Lego set. You're using different Legos, different sets. You're mixing and matching. That's experimentalism. Avant-garde is then grabbing some glue and some leaves from outside and maybe a couple of rocks and the cat and making something that's completely different than what those initial pieces intended. That's your avant-garde piece right there. The cat piece. So... Um, strange but structured and then effing crazy. Yeah, like really, it's it's literally bucking the norm. It's going out of your way to break down the societal norm that people are expecting. The, the, the oh yeah, you have to follow it up with a, you gotta drop the bass. The first time the bass was dropped, that was avant-garde. It's no longer avant-garde because now it's the standard. Just uh, to interrupt, if you want to continue with uh, Simpsons references, oh, no. uh, same episode, you know, Barbershop Quartet. Right. Um, the, uh, I know where this is going. The <clears throat> Ono character <laughs> yeah, yeah. comes in uh, and says, I would like a single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Would that be avant-garde? It, it, yes. Sure. Yes, it probably would be because that, that bucks the social norm. How can a hat hold a drink? Why Why is there a plum? How can it? There- well, it can see. How can't it? I ask you. I beseech you. I feel like we're getting closer and closer to just the eternal question of if God were my, to microwave a burrito, burrito, would it be so hot that even he could not eat it? Well, that's that's uh, a part of a that's a that's a philosophical logic problem, and that's that's not avant garde anymore because that's just the standard. This question topic that you was ask. bound to fail. <laughs> well, no, what you got to remember a lot of things that people and here's the crux of it: a lot of things that people call avant garde are really just experimenting within the standard norms, and that's what I think a lot of people don't get when you add in orchestral music to classic, uh, well, at the time, rock and roll. That's not really avant-garde. That's just being experimental. When you use rock and roll to write an actual Beethoven-length and stylistic piece, but then break it apart into further subsections by throwing in screeching monkeys, then you're getting avant-garde. Then you're just just screwing with everything. You seem to have a better definition than the uh, definition masters. 
Well, I I had to bone up on this stuff because <laughs> of what we did the last two weeks. That's not a and compliment honestly, necessarily. You just seem really confident. Well, yes, there. Okay, I am very confident. You're very confident. I mean, it's like last response. week, you convinced me. You convinced oh, me. I? I'm extremely confident. Well, I give myself five stars. I didn't say competent. I said confident. <laughs> you, I'm, I'm confident too. Anyway, this is uh, kind of weird because I think I I I I do picture something very. Uh, specific when I think of avant-garde, and it really yeah. is avant-garde jazz. It's actually not used in a lot of other uh, other capacities. Like that's right. normally the thing, and even today it kind of held true. So if that's the case, then avant-garde, like every single time, it's it's um it's broached in like electronica. We always do say experimental, in which case it really is just a terminology fail. That's all it is. I mean, like it probably would fall out if the day that you know jazz falls out of uh, of um of being played regularly, which I really hope it never does, but if if that happens, then will we use will we lose the word avant-garde too? I mean, or I don't will know. we start applying it to other things? I feel like we just start applying it to other things. I mean, also thinking about the genrefication of stuff in general, and we've talked about this time and time again. People like to make shit up too. So I mean, oh, it's speaking of making shit up, I gotta go. Sorry, uh, the Museum of Non-Visible Art. I know I've, I've Steve heard and I have it. talked about I've it a few it. times. You've heard of it as well? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, it is art that doesn't exist. Yeah. I don't know anything that could be more, well, first off, more pretentious, but also more avant-garde than or physical th- art that doesn't exist. There's a perfect example. I'm not saying that a museum necessarily. I mean art, like visual art, period. Whether it was visual or non-visual, it's besides the point, all art now is avant-garde. All art. Yeah, I don't think you're very like that's that's a bit of a societal flaw. Is I don't think you're a very respected artist if you're not doing something avant-garde. There are people that really are not going to make it in the world if they're just drawing fruit. Well, that's and landscapes as beautiful as they are. But at the same time, a lot of stuff that was once regarded as avant-garde is now just merely a phase or a period or a stylistic choice. Minimalism, which I love to rag on, mostly off-air, is really just being interpretive and simple, in my opinion. Like, you throw a red sprotch on the bottom of a corner and then call it something and expect it to be provocative and evocative and all these vocatives is kind of... It works once or twice, but not ad nauseum. Now we just call it a minimalistic. That's all it is, minimalistic. The bare minimum of being art. My my point is simply that like in, in the visual art world, I feel like things have grown far more extreme. Um, in music, you you can absolutely etch out a career if you just decide to be a country musician yeah. for the rest of your days. That's it. You, well, you could do that and, you know... Maybe some people won't like it, but that that's a career. That is a is a respected choice within certain circles. And I'm not saying that's not there within visual art, but they tend to be a little bit snootier. Sadly, They've grown a little bit snootier, more so than they were 150 years ago. Sadly, visual art has kind of shifted towards, well, as accepted and propagated as mainstream would be movies, television, and those ilk. Everything that would be considered visual art and art pieces tends to be a great movie piece. Or something like that. It, the visual arts are much less paintings and sculptures nowadays. Sad. Maybe that's why they did it, the non-visible museum. Want to go? Franco made a <laughs> killing on one of his pieces. $12,000 for a placard that said what the thing was. Of course. Oh, boy. It, it's, it's fascinating, and I understand why they're doing it. I just think it's the heights of pretentiousness. 
that essentially is John Cage 433 in visual art form. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, on that shocking note, why don't we uh, start wrapping up this episode? Steve, I imagine you have uh, something to share this week. Yes, I do. But it ain't a spam. I know. That's why I didn't say yeah, spam. Yeah, okay. You were on the same page. Here's an amazing two-hour passionate debate on varmints with moment-by-moment pros-cons by three dudes from Crash Chords Web. You know who said that? Anna Meredith, who wrote varmints. So we, we got a nice shout-out from Anna Meredith on Twitter. Um, I responded to her thanking her for digging it, and she, we had a little back and forth. It, she seems to have actually listened to the episode and is promoting it, which we are super thankful for. So if, Anna, you've been checking out other stuff after that episode, thank you for listening. And uh, Matt responded, thank you so much for sharing our show. And she said, hey, thanks for taking the time to dissect it all in such detail. Love it. With exclamation points about you don't know how much it it I feel you know in some ways a little bit validated when an artist stumbles upon it's happened a few times yeah. in, in our and we didn't even in our we didn't even at reply her in, in the original post she just found it yep. yeah that's great which I, I think probably worked more in our favor if they find it on their own mm-hmm. yeah it's it well, well it, Godstick's yeah. already I guess got us some fans in the UK maybe word traveled there <laughs> I don't well, know. well I mean to be fair with with Godsticks they were fans of us before. And told Godsticks like that's there was a fan happened. who told them or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, now we have fans in Scotland. I Pretty can neat. only hope we got to all our new followers and listeners. Thank you and keep listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's my turn to pick an album for next week, mm-hmm. and I figured I would. I had almost picked uh, something fairly mainstream, just because it's an artist that I've always respected and never dissected one of his records but I decided against it mostly because I listened to it and it sounded distinctly like him the the artist that I ended up not choosing was Santana and it's because his album sounded like Santana I don't know that what we would really have to discuss about it and so I felt like we get into the technical things of Santana but yeah I get you I feel like we would have painted ourselves into a corner so in continuing the transition of taking stuff that's a little outside the norm though I'm taking something that's a little more popular I had done that with M83 who's a little outside the norm but still operating within a normal decade, I guess, I ended up picking the Blue Man Group. Ah. Well-known across the world, have tons of theater shows, though I've not actually seen them in person. I've heard great things. They put out a brand new record called Simply Three. I believe it's their third record, full length. And Hey, John, not, hey John, what are they, experimental? Are they avant-garde? Are they experimental? They're actually experimental. They're not avant-garde. Uh, as far as all my understanding of all the music I've heard by them, no, they're not considered avant-garde. Even for percussionists? The experimental nature is the fact that they are percussionists on unusual objects, but what they're doing is music within a very familiar framework. See, rest easy, folks. John has all the answers. Obviously. Also, can... i am got to... Okay, I go next. I'm going to have to pick something with lyrics, because I'm tired of not singing along so, with music. So now, oh. uh, in Ooh, the past... No, it is Blue Man Ooh, Group. Hiss. In it's the past, Blue Man Group, so it should be good. Yeah, and Blue Man Group have done things with vocalists. There might be some vocalists on this record. I mean, um, their last record, which the name I'm blanking on, had two? Dave Matthews on it. It wasn't two. Oh, just Dave try. Matthews was on it and sang, and um, Gavin Rossdale of Bush was on it and sang. And so, you know, one of the blue men are not going to sing, right? I don't. They don't I mean, that's sing. that's like that's like seeing the hand that supports the Muppet. That's, right. That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Or what's underneath it. cousin It's hair? Exactly. Yeah. So we'll be taking that on next week in order to further perpetuate this kind of bizarre turn that Crash Course has taken lately, away from anything with lyrics. I'm loving it. Um, so we'll check that out. And um, in the meantime, along. paint yourselves blue and remember, music is life and, and life, life is, is good. good. Thank you.
If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.